Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 19, Kingdom of Heaven. The Super 70 is a commentary meant to sync with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can find it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Himalaya, Pocket Cast, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. We will be using the 194-minute version of Kingdom of Heaven on Voodoo.com and marked as the director's cut. It was released in a four-DVD set in 2005 in companion with the initial theatrical release on DVD at the same time. Make sure you have the correct version or the sync will be off in minutes. If you are using the DVD version, please remember that the version is split at the Interact on two DVDs, and you will need to pause the podcast when the Interact occurs. If you are watching the Voodoo version of the film... Be aware of the overture and the interact, which will automatically appear at the beginning and the middle of the film. If you are using the DVD, Ridley Scott introduces the film in one minute and two second explanation. In this case, you should go to the scenes menu and start at the overture, chapter one, so the sync will work. If you press play on either Voodoo or your DVD scene chapter now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Overtures were big back in the 1950s and 60s when Hollywood was putting out these huge sword and sandal epics like Cleopatra and Ben-Hur. A big one is uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. Overtures were meant to emphasize the music in the beginning of the film, and the interact was supposed to give people the chance to run to the bathroom or grab more popcorn. The last interact I saw was last night, Lawrence of Arabia, the 60th anniversary, or 65th, or whatever the hell anniversary it was. Luke and I went to go see it. And I saw one for Gettysburg that was 30 minutes, which I needed because that movie was literally four hours long. This overture is supposed to mimic the vocals and the basic music of medieval Europe. Everything in Europe at the time was dominated by religion in Western Europe, especially France, where the kingdom of heaven starts, was completely dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. And the church, or we should say faith, was the inspiration of most of the music that survives from this period. And most music from the churches came from the choir. The monasteries were great sources of music. The Benedictine monks of Santo Domingo even won a Grammy about 30 years ago for, for a chance that they did. Even the string instruments you hear in the soundtrack of the Kingdom of Heaven are inspired by the wooden lyres available back then. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Anderson is back in the his ass, or as I like to refer to him in my study in my podcast studio, The Hacienda. Welcome back, Dave. Well, thank you very much. I am thrilled and honored to be invited back after... The last time, hopefully it was good enough. Um, apparently it was, crossing fingers. And, and a marked improvement will occur this time. Oh, I hope so. I hope the feedback issue is solved. Yeah, I don't think it'll be an issue at all. Okay, so I first saw Kingdom of Heaven in the theater the first weekend it came out. And I got to tell you, okay, I was not impressed. That's the understanding I have had. I have not seen the original theatrical cut, so I have no frame of reference beyond what I've heard. I remember buying this DVD when it came out primarily because there was so much acclaim around the longer version relative to the original theatrical. So that's, that's like piqued my interest, but I've never seen the original theatrical. So it must be cut to shreds, but like I said, not actually seeing it, I'm working on an assumption or baits and all of it from the internet. Right. Now, I love Ridley Scott, 
but he's been real inconsistent. Exceptionally so. Yes. And I think this is like, I think this movie is like a perfect encapsulation of that. Because <laughs> right. it's remarkably inconsistent. Yes. Yeah. Now, he's the first director that I returned to on the Super 70 podcast. I did Blade Runner for my first episode. Makes sense. He did G.I. Jane in 1997 with Demi Moore and Michael Bean, who was in The Terminator and Aliens, mm-hmm. and the sequel to Scott's first film. Hannibal was a shit show in 2001. That was... Yeah. I don't want to think about it. Black Hawk Down with Orlando Bloom came out the same year. Enjoyed that quite a bit. Fantastic film. Uh, noted for our, for one of the most accurate displays of historical event, actually, on film. Okay. Uh, completely opposite of Kingdom of Heaven. Now, uh, perhaps one of the greatest war, greatest war films ever made. Then Matchstick Men in 2003 is arguably the last good Nicolas Cage film. I'd have to think about that. I hope that's not the case. And then Kingdom of Heaven in 2005. He's always been up and down. It's frustrating. And mm-hmm. we should get together and talk about his other films and, and maybe another special report that we do after this. But when he's on his game, his results are amazing. And I got to tell you, I hated this in the theater. And we'll go into why along the way when we do this scene by scene. But I was not a fan. And I asked you after the Terminator podcast, because mm-hmm. if you haven't noticed, the second decade of my podcast is one film representing one decade of right. American history. And I asked you what film should represent 2000 to 2010. And you said Kingdom of Heaven. And I really took a pause. Well, that's reasonable. I'm, I primarily um, recommended it to you based on knowing you personally and your great interest in history. And also, I figured it was somewhat outside the box. Oh, very much so. So yeah. I was like, okay, this is an interesting thing to see because it's not like I hear about this movie with any degree of regularity. Mm-hmm. So I thought you just might find it interesting. I didn't know that you'd actually seen the theatrical in the theaters. Right. Yeah. Um, so actually the story behind the the rotten fruit, obviously, is you know Europe is rotten to the core. That's what I took from that, pulling the maggot out of the fruit. So what had happened was uh, I was actually, I took the exit test to be a teacher in the state of Texas. And my results were due at one o'clock on a Saturday and mm-hmm. kingdom of heaven. It came out on the Friday. Uh, so I, rather than, than sit and stew and wait for the results to come in because I did not know if I was going to have a job by one o'clock that afternoon, I went to go see kingdom of heaven and it sucked bad. <laughs> and so I came back, I was not in a good mood. And my wife had in the, in the garage where I parked my car, my wife had actually put a note up on the door saying you passed right when I came in the garage. Yeah. So, so that was a, Bit of good news after this. After this, for sure. So, uh, you gave me a copy of the director's cut, which I didn't even know existed. That's actually really surprising. Yeah. And I watched it up in my movie theater upstairs. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was completely blown away. I was really impressed by the difference between the two versions, which is not marginal by any sense of the imagination. That is my understanding. Uh, the scope and the ambition of the film is just completely different. It's a different movie, and I'm glad you brought it, and I'm glad I watched it and agreed to this, that it should be in the next decade. However... I've done a lot of research on this, mm-hmm. and I got a lot of crap from the Crusades in my head. I've, I must have read about three or four books, about 20 articles on it. I've seen the director's cut uh, many times, and my opinion on it has changed. I don't think it's the disaster that the first cut is, okay. but I've, I've got some definite historical issues with it. So here we are watching The Kingdom of Heaven. So when did you first see it? Oh, I think I saw it when it came out on DVD. Okay. So okay. When, when did you say that was, 2010? No, uh, 2005. 2005. Oh, geez, I'm off by half a decade. So, um, you know, I think we'll definitely watch this movie from two differing perspectives, right? You're going to be much more interested and guided by the historical accuracies or not so much as. And to me, that isn't all that relevant. Um, I'm mostly going to, you know, I, I watch it for does it tell a good tale, 
right? Is it, you know, interesting? Does it captivating, compelling? You name it, things like that from strictly the movie standpoint. Check all three boxes. I mean, really, it, it is all those things. It is many of those things, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is uh, Spain, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, simply an amazing shot, amazing title card. Oh, uh, yeah. Landscape of Spain. They shot the entire film in Spain and Morocco, including all the studio sequences. There are many references to the kingdom of heaven in the Bible, but the one that I found that relates the most is Matthew 7.21, which reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Also, Matthew 5.20, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's fitting that we start the story in France because the great majority of the first crusaders were French. Okay. This was actually an a France that was not actually France yet. Like they had a king, but not all of France as we know it today was in the kingdom of France. So they were actually called the Franks Mm -hmm. and all of the ruling aristocracy in the Latin kingdom were French or descendants of the French, one or two generations removed. And France at the time was the dominant country in all of Europe, despite not being all together. Half of France was actually the personal property of the King of England. But he was French, and okay. he spoke French, and, had, and he spoke English as well, but just the kings of England spoke French for 100 years after uh, the Plantagenets died out. So most of the kings of England would not spend too much time actually in England until King John got kicked out of France in the 1200s, okay. which, is, which is after the Battle of Hattin. So uh, – Sorry, I'm having flashbacks no, okay. of, of Robin Hood, and you know, <laughs> I'm waiting for Morgan Freeman to show up anyhow. He, well, to a certain degree, the character does. Yeah, so we already passed Michael Sheen, <clears throat> who plays a priest, and supposedly he's a brother or a half-brother of uh, Balian. Yes, and he's apparently a half-brother, which is part of the problem I have with the movie, even in its extended form, is that the relationships are not immediately clear, and I don't need to be banged over the head with why people do things or what the relationships are, but it's pretty obscured in this movie oftentimes like who exactly is that why does this person matter yeah who's the father right all of that why is there this great conflict it's like it's not critical that they have to show the whole cain and abel back history that this person is bad and this is what he wants but it is one of those it's almost irrational of the amount of apparent love that the village has for the orlando bloom character and why the priest despises him so much i'm sure there's a backstory written down somewhere. Oh, there's got to be. And the stuff flying around here, and I, I know that you've seen a dozen Ridley Scott films mm-hmm. like I have, but, you know, it reminded me of Legend. Like, I remember Ridley Scott's Legend or just, just oh, yeah. with Tom Cruise. It's stuff flying in the air mm-hmm. all the time. All the time. He loves having fans right off the camera. Mm, yes. Okay, so Michael Sheen, like I was saying before, before this, there was not much. The Four Feathers in 2002, Underworld in 2003, Timeline in 2003. After this, he famously played Tony Blair in The Queen in 2006. He's been in every Underworld sequel since, but I only know him from Tron Legacy. Oh, okay. So the priest is hungry. He's opportunistic. He's an asshole. He's a brother of Balian. Is the brother evil or jealous? Is jealousy an evil? That's what I got out of that. Right. And he he certainly is, but it's unclear as to why. Yeah. To me, I, I just don't get it. It's like, okay, he is a bad seed because he is. Right. No, I mean, I obviously took it as, and we know that this was a, a huge problem after after six or seven hundred straight years of 
of Catholicism just having a stranglehold on mm-hmm. on the lay people of, of Europe, there were bad seeds. Oh, absolutely, in the church, and that was part of the part of the reason for the Crusades and the Reformation that followed, and, and all of that. But I I thought it was a very you know this yeah, film, Jamie this, Lannister yeah Jamie Lannister yeah uh, and Lupin Remus Lupin mm-hmm. uh, the I thought this was very unkind to the first the first priest you saw as a bad seed. And, of course, the Patriarch of Jerusalem is just a total dick. Yes. And it's it's very, I mean, without with the exception of the Hospitaller, which is played by David Thewlis, mm-hmm. with the exception of him and some others, I mean, Balian, of course, is a, is a great example of a, a very devout Christian. There's not very, very good examples of clergy in the entire film. No, but there's not a whole lot of great depictions of people throughout the whole movie. I guess that's, let me retract that. That's actually inaccurate. But I think based on, you know, like I said, I'm not the history, you know, buff, knowledge, king that you are. But, I mean, establishing uh, the churches with a specific, you know, identity, ideology, and why people do things. Okay, that makes sense from a story point standpoint. Okay, we're going to have these people be avatars, and this is why they're doing things, because the church wills it, et cetera, et cetera, or... In this creep's mind, you know, I think he's primarily using his power as a priest just to get what he wants. Yeah. Which is very unclear as to what he wants, aside from whatever his brother has. But it doesn't look like he's been deprived of really anything. Yeah. That wasn't his own choice, presumably. Well, I would I would hope and think so. But um, it's just the way that he's taunting him here. Mm-hmm. I, mean, that, I mean, we we all have... Most of us have siblings. Yes. And, but uh, that goes beyond the pale for me to mm-hmm. say, you know, how he's treating his brother over his wife's death is, I won't say that it never happened. It just seems. It's over the top more than just plain bullying. Right. Right. Now, uh, okay. <laughs> hmm. This is our first departure from history, and I'm, I'm going to try to make this as as concise as possible. And, and I'm going to asterisk everything with, I am not a medieval historian. I am degree train historian though. And I know how to research. So I researched this after you recommended it to me. And we'll start with the general overview just for our listeners. Very quickly, the Pope of the Catholic church, urban, the second gave a speech to the aristocracy of France at the council of Claremont in 1095. And it was more like a sermon actually. And he called on the French aristocracy to organize an attempt to take the Holy land back from the Muslims who had taken modern-day Israel, or if you care, what is today Palestine, or what we commonly call the Holy Land, or the Levant, or whatever, in the 700s. So by the First Crusade, the Muslims had occupied the Levant for about three centuries. So to start off with this idea that somehow Christians were taking it back is kind of skewed to begin with. Muslims had taken it before the Crusaders, and the Byzantines had taken it before the Muslims, but the pagans had had it before the Byzantines, and then the Jews had it before the pagans. And the Palestinians had it before then, and then the Egyptians. So we're talking about a contested part of the earth here that is really hard to pin down, and it's very hard to say that that struggle is over. Oh, absolutely. We're still dealing with the after effects of the partition. Oh, just people being people. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. So we, we have scenes here that all is not well in Christendom, the corruption of the priest. By the time of the Crusades, Christianity was a thousand years old. And in the Western Roman Empire, it was really only about 500 years old. Constantine did not pass the Edict of Milan until 313 AD, which is confused in school. It's mistaught. It's not a law that makes Christianity the state religion of Rome. It's an edict of toleration. Mm -hmm. So we're going to tolerate Christians, not necessarily accept them, because by 300, they're everywhere. Right. 
and you can't get rid of them. He also built the first church of the Holy Sepulchre, which, by the way, is where Christ's body is supposedly entombed, if, if you're not into the whole Christian thing. The last pagan emperor was Julian, who died in 363, and after that, paganism is on the decline. Rome is sacked several times, but 546 is the last date where Rome is basically effectively destroyed and ceases to be a, a, an empire in the, in the West. The star power of Orlando Bloom, my friend, Fellowship of the Ring, 2001, Black Hawk Down, 2001, Pirates of the Caribbean, 2003, Troy, 2004. He's primed for this. Yes. Other than the pirate movies, he's floundered since Kingdom of Heaven, I think. Oh, yeah. He has not made a significant impact on the viewing public, I wouldn't say. And I mean, even in this movie, I don't find him a very compelling protagonist, you know, from the way he plays it. It's pretty frankly dull yeah it seems rather flat he doesn't have a lot of charisma right i mean he comes across as devout Mm -hmm. oh absolutely um which is probably true to the way they wanted to play to make sense right but it's not just a compelling watching yes yeah i would say so not a lot of you know passion if you will right uh now uh balian balian of ebeline was actually Oh my God, I want to get into some of these details that are just quite crazy. But he was actually born in the Levant. His father was Baldwin okay. uh, of Abel, and Baldwin was actually born in, in France. So there's part of this is true and part of this is not. So um, so it's inspired by a true story. Right, it's inspired by, yeah. So the Abelin family was actually like a, a very influential family in in the kingdom of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And they they centered their power in a castle called uh, Nablus, N-A-B-L-U-S. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not going to call you on it if you're not. Yeah, and but Balian himself was already married. He married the uh, the Dowager Queen of the Byzantine Empire. Okay, so she was, her name was actually Queen Maria. So just just to offset this, like Balian was not a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. He was not born in France. Uh, he did not go on crusade. He was born uh, in the Levant. Uh, and he was he was married to somebody else, so he wasn't skirt chasing uh, the uh, the sister of of the king right. of Jerusalem. Um, they take a lot of license, license with it. Like Liam Neeson is supposed to be his father, but his name is Godfrey, mm-hmm. not not Baldwin. So just immediately, like if you're if you're reading histories and you're trying to catch up on the Latin Kingdom because you find this a fascinating movie, you get very easily confused. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And the screenwriter is a very talented screenwriter. God, what's his name? Uh, I swore I was going to put him IMDb up. Now, okay, so does okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to use the actors' names as opposed to the characters. Yeah, yeah. So it, does Orlando Bloom know that Liam Neeson is his father prior to? Does he know that he's a bastard before this moment? I think he knows he's a bastard. I don't think that he knows who his father is. Right. So I wasn't sure on this. You know, it was presented as if it's a surprise, but at the same time, he doesn't react as if it's a shock to him. I think he's 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 surprised that that is his father, right? And that that that, that I understand. Yeah, but he's never met him before. That's what I got out of it. He's, he's never met. He his emotes like a mother, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Orlando Bloom doesn't do a bad job in this movie, I don't think, but. I think he does it to the best of his abilities, and I think his abilities appear to be sort of muted. Well, he's a good actor. 
Yeah, he's uh, good. And he's he's acted in other films perfectly fine. I, I think that we're seeing here is the effects of the direction. Probably. It seems right? accurate. Because I mean, yeah. we know that he can act. Um, he's, he plays completely different characters in other movies. Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down, even though he's only in it for about 15, 20 minutes. Right. A compl- entirely different character. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the kid who falls off the chopper yes. in the beginning. Um, N- Liam Neeson, on the other hand here, is throwing all kinds of yeah, he's emotions. A, well, and also, but it's it's understated, but it's got a lot of power to it. You know, yes. he's no histrionics or anything, but you can tell that he's processing the reactions or lack thereof. And he's just, in my opinion, just su- such a better actor. It's absurd. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Yes. Yes. No, without a doubt. William Monaghan was the was the writer of the Kingdom of Heaven, okay. and he was writing a a script for Ridley Scott called Tripoli, which is about the American war against the Barbary pilot, pirates. I would have much preferred to watch that movie. Yeah, in the early eighteen hundreds, that would have been pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and apparently they they had they were in pre production mm-hmm. and they had a start date, and they were creeping towards the front of it, and and the production company and I can't remember which one it was just decided they were going to pull the plug. And then they decided to take this one on as an easier alternative? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> they did. To the point to where they actually used some of the same stuff. Like, oh, we'll use the same production design for the village, for mm-hmm. example. We're just going to give it a different color tone. Sure. That actually make it... makes sense. Right. But it's one of those, I mean, no matter what, this, I mean, reading about how this movie was made has to be a fascinating story because it's definitely a lot of moving parts. You know, I don't know what percentage of it is very early primitive CGI, but I'm sure all the... Soldiers in the background, those are all real extras, I'm guessing. Uh, no, they're all... No, it's, really? It's a computer-generated... Yeah, it's a really good computer-generated really well modeling. Done. Yeah. No, it is. And we'll get into the... Particularly in the Battle of Hattin, it's it's done very well. And all of that... I, I mean, I have to say, this, the quality, the production design... Yeah, technically, the it's really well done. Is, yeah. And, and Ridley Scott does not let you down on that. Like, I could not stand Prometheus. I hated Prometheus. But if you want to look at production quality, Prometheus it's is really outstandingly roof. done. Absolutely. It's an outstandingly done bad movie. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's an idea. Balin is going to go to Jerusalem to counter his wife's sin. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we we have to deal with that. How <laughs> so? I mean, it makes sense considering the time, the beliefs. You know, it's a great opportunity for him to get away from his past and think that he's doing something greater than himself. Certainly. Or are you talking Certainly. about? No, I'm not, I'm not. I don't have any tr- tricks or cards. Up, right. No, no, I know. It's kind of like, um, you know, I've got a I've got a cousin who uh, went to West Point and went to Iraq. And mm-hmm. he's uh, he's a he's actually a chaplain now. Okay. Uh, he went to theological seminary. And he he really, really felt like, uh, as an officer in the U.S. Army, um, he was part of the problem. Like, he he was part of, I broke Iraq, and it's also my job to fix it. Okay. So when he went back for his second tour, that was his mindset. If I have to fix what we broke. Okay. And, you know, it's very easy for other people to criticize that. Sure. It's very easy to jump into... Um, there are people who are running this country who think of themselves as the Christian saviors of the world. And we go into a Muslim country and we fuck it up. And then now we're, we have this, uh, this mindset of, we have to, to save it mm-hmm. in a, in a very like parental form. Yeah. And I can see how that would be just extremely insulting on the Muslim side of things. 
I'm sure to some of them it is, and some of them not so much. Right, right. Or, or you could. I just, understand in Iraq they did, from a general standpoint, they didn't want them to leave. Right, for a very long time. It's like no, mm-hmm. Americans don't take off uh, <laughs> just yet. Yeah, yeah. right. So, but this is a penitential war. So, uh, and some critics attacked that uh, during the First Crusade. Uh, but when it succeeded, the idea that you could work off your sins in the Holy Land was very persuasive. Yes, I can see where it would be. Yeah, so there was also this very unique idea that if you did something absolutely... I mean, there's a reason why Jesus is very persuasive. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the message was overpowering. Yeah, it's like, oh, okay, I can... Especially, well, you know, back in the day, when, you know, it would have sucked. Yeah, yes. so some kind of hope for redemption and paradise, because everything at the time sucked a lot. Right. And we talked before about how redemption as an original message in, in the Western mm-hmm. civilization is, is a redeeming factor that, that is probably one of the reasons why the West has been so, quote-unquote, successful. Um, oh, I, however wouldn't put, you, I wouldn't put quotes around it. It's been very successful. It's been very, well, yeah, <laughs> Objectively. Western, yes. The, the past thousand years has been very good to us, particularly the last 500. Sure. But so I don't know if that's necessarily the reason why, but I'm just saying. Right, it's right. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, that's a point of view. So there's... There was this very unique idea that if you did something absolutely unforgivable, the local lord or even the bishop could tell you, listen, if you go spend the rest of your life in Neutremere, mm-hmm. and the Neutremere was the French word for the French lands in the Levant. Okay. It, it basically meant those lands overseas. Uh, and especially if you die fighting for God, then you're all good. Don't worry about heaven, but if, but you can't stay here. So in a sense, the Neutremere was taking in a lot of these cases. And it's hard to say it, but a lot of these guys according to the church, at least, mm-hmm. were criminals. Yes. In the employ of aristocrats who were being forced out or lured out of Europe mm-hmm. by riches. And the easiest thing that you could do, actually, is to join an order, like the Templars or the Hospitallers. And the orders did not report to a traditional lord. They were established orders of the Vatican. Like the Templars, for example, their job was to protect the temple in Jerusalem and to protect the pilgrimage caravans. That way you didn't have to go fight for a noble who didn't necessarily care about you. Mm-hmm. So Templars, warrior monks, poverty, chastity, obedience. This represented a great revival of faith during the Crusades. As as we see, you know, hospitalers on the screen right now. Right. And I, I don't mean to totally make this go off track from, you know, your, where no, you're no, going no, with no, it. Sure. But this scene... And this whole segment here, I find, is a real problem with the movie. Oh. Because, in my opinion, it is filled with the most interesting characters, you know, and Hmm. people that I wanted to get to know more about. And since I'd forgotten about most of this movie by the time I'd seen it again, I found it really disappointing that a lot of what I found the initially very interesting characters were... You know, killed off almost immediately. Like Thor standing over there? Correct. Or the Moor. Yeah. Or even Liam Neeson, to a certain degree, gets taken out at this point. He's never much else in this movie. That's not accurate, of course, but from an action standpoint, he's not. So, and I found this really interesting, and I enjoyed it. Oh, and um, The Englishman. Yeah. Who, uh, David Thewlis? No, 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 no. Not David Thewlis, but uh, um, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of those yeah, guys. Yeah, he's one of those guys. He's yeah. one of those guys. Yeah, that's you know, the- he's still in it beyond this, but the character is really marginalized and then presumably dies off screen in the 
great storm sequence. Oh, right. Yeah, on the ship. So yeah. I just found this very unfortunate. It's like, okay, they're really starting to build something. And then, you know, you have the chaos of war and ugliness, and Jamie Lannister gets it. But it just takes out a lot of the interesting characters in my mind for really no significant gain. That's that's a very good point. Yeah, the band is broken up yeah, before, like before the show starts. Right, because it was one of those you could see a really fascinating movie about this group of people going through, going down to the Holy Lands, and then, you know, if they need to perish to further the story, then it totally makes sense. But mm. it almost it, doesn't serve the story here. Yeah, it doesn't serve the story. That's a good question. So I'm not really sure why it happened like this. No, that's a good point. I never really thought about that. I just accept it as... as Balian did not have to arrive in the Levant mm-hmm. uh, with a blank check. He could have... A blank slate, I should say. Well, even then, okay, you have Liam Neeson get his mor- mortally wounded during this sequence, and he passes that on. But then he has this crew that knows him and trusts him and supports him. You know, it would have made that buy-in period when he enters the Holy Land a little bit more believable as well. Yeah. As opposed to a, the eye color and height. No, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. So that's why I was going from a storytelling standpoint. It just struck me as dissatisfying. It was a, it's a really good action sequence for sure. But like I said, you don't need them all to be red shirts. Yep. Right. Speaking of red shirts. Yeah, speaking of red shirts, yeah. Although that, that scene of uh, uh, Liam Neeson uh, teaching, or Baldwin teaching Balian how to hold a sword mm-hmm. in, in combat, uh, particularly as Neeson is so huge. He's, he's a large man. He's just a tall dude holding that. And it's not a claymore, but damn, it's close. It's very... Now, also... Also, another thing that was cut out of the original, mm-hmm. uh, which I found in the director's cut, is and they talk about. So yeah, is this actually in the uh, theatrical or is yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's much shorter. Yeah, does uh, it pretty truncated? It's yeah, and I mean, him crossing the horse. I don't think that was in the in the original, which is admittedly pretty clever. But the there was a, a very remarkable piece of dialogue that was cut out, and and it was when they were still in the village where Balian was actually saying about how he had actually fought in war before mm-hmm. for a lord, although for a cause he did not know or remember or right. even care about. Explains why he's fairly skilled at. Killing right now. Right. Yeah. That that explained. I do remember watching the fight scene to begin with. Like, oh, wow, he's really handy with a sword really fast after his training. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, this guy fighting with an arrow through his neck is just... There was a quick cut there that was kind of cheating on Scott's part, but whatever. So where what the hell was this guy in? Now now that you pointed it out, I, 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 he's got the Joey Pants Award. I well, guess. he was in the uh, HBO show Rome. That's where I know him from. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, he was one of the. Uh, he was uh, pretty much the lead character one of the on that Centurions. show. Yeah, that's right. But I, I I think he was in something else, but I don't honestly know what it is. Man, which that was a tremendous show, and I was very disappointed when they canceled it early. Yeah. No, uh, okay. Balian, so, that's okay. Uh, Balian being being a bastard, mm-hmm. um, he's he's right for for time in Utramir because you are talking about an area that's run by second sons, mm-hmm. second brothers, um, general outcasts, right? Uh, a society that really had nothing to uh, sit for in Europe mm-hmm. except for waiting for an older person to die. And I read uh, a complete history of the Crusades, and I read a book on Hattin. 
and then something something else, uh, feudalism in the kingdom of, of Jerusalem. And they are all filled with, per- particularly when Sibylla of Jerusalem uh, comes of age. Mm-hmm. It's like, who the hell are we going to marry her off to? Right. She was married three times. So you know, Guy de Lucien was, was her second husband. And and it was it was a huge because life in Utremir was so harsh mm-hmm. the 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 life expectancy was almost like thirty percent lower uh, if you were serving oh, yeah. in the Utremir than if you were serving in if you lived in Europe and it was just not like Europe was known for the really old dudes at the time no not at all and I would imagine I haven't looked it up but I'd imagine it'd be longer in Japan or China I, or India or potentially I just, I just don't know. Oh, I'm sure life wasn't a lot easier in those parts of the world either. No, I'm, I'm sure it, you know, until modern times. Correct. It, right. Until, um, like, I don't know, penicillin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is the first film, first Hollywood film that really deals with religious issues, and I mean Christian-Muslim conflict, after 9-11. And I was really surprised when I heard that Ridley Scott was was doing a film on the Crusades. Mm-hmm. I was I was surprised that a film like that got greenlit. Yeah, it is one of those things where, at the time, it would be shocking. Yeah. I don't really honestly recall this really even coming out to a certain degree, right? Because there wasn't the internet like we know it now, where everything is yeah. interconnected, and we didn't have smartphones. We had these things called flip phones, and they worked fine. <laughs> but you couldn't get a lot of your day-to-day information that you desperately need at the time. But yeah. no, you're right. and it, it is one of those things where it's pretty admirable that they would even... Try to do something like this where you have a lot of shades of gray throughout the entire movie. Because it would have been very easy to, you know, color any particular group as god-awful. Except, well, the Templars, of course, are not portrayed all that, you know, what's the right word? Nicely. (laughs) It's not the right word. but Yeah. No, the orders are definitely. But most everybody else is a fleshed out two, if not three-dimensional human. Which is, you know, pretty admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that this would be this, the movie that it is without 9-11. Like, I know that William Monaghan was working on the script for a very long time before 9-11. You think so? I mean, it's... Well, he was. No, 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 no. No, the, the statement about it being greatly affected by I, 9-11. Yeah, I think, I think uh, the portrayal of the Christians and the Muslims is, is deliberately painted in a, in a certain light uh, due to... 9/11 and that was one of the criticisms of the film. Like but there there's some things that don't make sense like the very word itself, crusades. Mm-hmm. Like this this is not a crusade film. That's not, No, it is not. That's not accurate. There's not a crusade. It happens during that general period of time in our brains, but right. yeah. Yeah. It's at at this point the first crusade has been over by 75 years. Mm-hmm. The second crusade happened, there's Guy de Lusignan. Uh the second crusade happens I think in the I think it's a it's 11 10 or 11 20 and that fail fails uh to to retake uh, Edessa which is taken by um, Saladin's great uncle or something if i remember correctly and so the, the word crusade is tainted the modern christians have a rather positive view of the word about what muslims attribute to the word jihad that's a crusade so the word is just has bad press in the arab world sure uh like the word jihad has bad press in the christian world correct George Bush famously used the word crusade to describe America's war on Al-Qaeda, and that was a huge blunder because the Arab world got a hold of that word and just went mm-hmm. bonkers over it. So this is really embarrassing because George Bush was a history major at Yale. Right. And he should know better. 
but someone had to school him on not using that word, and when no president has used it since. Even our current one, who will say almost anything at any given time? <laughs> it's rather shocking, frankly. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned the Templars. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, the the white cross on the red cross on the white just means that you are going on crusade. The white cross on the black means you're a hospitaller, and then there's a separate symbol for uh, uh, for the temple. Oh, I thought it was like a target. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly so. And this scene here, like this shot here, like oh my god, man! And I'm sure that there's CGI in it, but. It's breathtaking. Oh, yeah. No, the cinematography is phenomenal. It's like every other Ridley Scott movie. It is always just gorgeous to look at. And oftentimes, they'd work better as silent films. Yeah. Well, oh, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. But, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's always shockingly beautiful. And when he passes away, it's going to be unfortunate because he is not unique, but he is certainly gifted. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these scenes uh, were actually shot in uh, the Alhambra, which is... Uh, a palace in Madrid, uh, which the the Muslims uh, built uh, during during the time where they were running Spain for uh, three or four hundred years before the Reconquista, and and my wife and I actually went there when we visited Spain, I think in two thousand. And the Alhambra is just utterly amazing. If you ever get the chance, it's it's go very check it out. go check it out. And of course, Ferdinand and Isabel added to it, and, mm-hmm. and every generation since then has put a courtyard off here and there and everywhere. It's a sprawling complex of just amazing things. I was actually amazed that they were able to go in there and shoot it because it's a museum. Gotcha. Right. But when I saw that in the, the special edition, because I watched everything that you gave me. <laughs> you yeah. watched all four discs. Yeah, I was like, oh, Listen wow. to the commentary. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. All right, to get back on track. Yeah. Were... <laughs> I don't remember where we were. So, Bailing gets ready to go on the crusade, and... We talked about how the Second Crusade has failed. The Europeans are very, very skeptical of going on crusade after the fall of Edessa. And but there was always Midland. There, there, yes. Uh, and because of that failure, there was a shortage of pilgrims and a shortage of crusaders. And this really hurt the Latin Kingdom because they needed that influx of people and money. Mm-hmm. And we can look at the Latin Kingdom like a disassociated colony of France, uh, particularly. And it, and it couldn't survive on its own. Uh, one of the amazing things we'll talk about later is uh, Henry II, who is king of England. Mm-hmm. Remember, he got into a spat with uh, Thomas A. Beckett, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes, Beckett winds yes, up. I getting, do remember that. Yeah, Beckett winds up getting murdered in the cathedral by these errant knights who want to do the king's bidding when the king's like topped off his head and makes a comment that he can't control. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people blame the king for this, and the Pope basically says, "Like, look, you've got to make amends." For this, I mean, you can't just go around killing the largest, the, you know, the highest-ranking clergyman yeah. in, in the country. It's a bad look, that. right? So he donated, uh, I think it was like a quarter of his entire inheritance uh, to the temple, mm-hmm. and it went over on a ship, and it stayed in the temple for decades. And Balian used that uh, to purchase the lives mm-hmm. of the survivors um, after the Battle of Hattin. Okay. Um, so it, I, you know, it. You can look at it in a number of ways. We, you know, we can we can complain about crusaders. We can complain about their motives. We can complain about, um, you know, how good of a Christian are these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but without that donation, there would be thousands and thousands of dead people. Right. Who I don't know how much longer they lived after the fall of Jerusalem, but they lived a whole lot longer than than they would have than they would have if someone did not care to purchase their lives. Right. Right. 
So there's there's this is one of the things that I I loved about this movie is it's it's not clean cut. No. And every scene and every and just him with the writing stick and this is obviously power, right? Mm-hmm. I have power over you and I don't I don't care about your power. I don't want your power. I want I don't, I don't want anything right. to do with your power trip. Which he is very consistent with that throughout the entire movie. I will yes, get in that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So uh Godfrey de Abelin takes this trip back to France. That happened a lot. Uh, many nobles went back to Europe on recruiting campaigns, and the reverse happened, of course. Many nobles and lay people went on pilgrimages to the Utremir, not just for a spiritual journey, but for secular business as well, because the families were still connected, and there were nobles in the Utremir who were heirs in Europe and vice versa. So sometimes the second brother would go out to the Utremir, and he'd be running things, like, mm-hmm. a, like a duchy or something. And then the older brother in France, he'd pass away. Okay. And then he'd go back to France to inherit that land because it was making him more money than it was in Utremere. Right. Well, that meant, well, I got to find somebody to run this. Got to have somebody take over for me. Right. Right. And so it, it caused a lot of chaos, actually, of of how are we going to manage this overseas colony mm-hmm. that has a king. Sure. Right. We're not even up to the forest fight. Forest fight. <laughs> yeah, I'm on my, on my notes. Oh, on your notes. <laughs> We're way past. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is one of those. There is a, an entire book sitting in your lap. Yeah. Because there is a lot of things that you can, you know, talk about in regards to this movie, whether it be as, you know, basis, just the movie making and the skill involved or, you know, the historical component. Yeah. Yeah, and, and well, and again, like this is two thousand four. Like I, we we kind of forget this now. Like we invaded Iraq in March of two thousand three. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this came out in the summer of two thousand four is just really amazing to me. And that they didn't portray the Muslims as complete bloodthirsty animals. Right. Well, that goes into the legend of Saladin, which we'll we'll but dive it, into later. But you know, in the time, it would have been very easy very, to be able to do it like that. And, very. You know, they didn't do it, and they weren't forced to do it. Yeah, this is a pretty powerful scene, and apparently this is part of. Uh, oh my God! When I was a teenager, I read a book on what it what it took for someone to become a knight, mm-hmm. and it, it was it was this brutal experience, and it was kind of like this gauntlet, like if you survived it, right? Type of situation. it wasn't just getting slapped by Liam Neeson. No, this is the truncated form. Yeah. Although getting slapped by <laughs> Liam Neeson has probably knocked many a brave man down. I don't care to ever get slapped by me, <laughs> Liam Neeson. That's for damn sure. Okay, so Godfrey talked about uh, the kingdom of con- con- conscience. He describes a tolerance between the two religions. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's really... Three religions. Three religions. What's the third one? Uh, the Jews. Oh, well, yeah, it's right. I mean, well, they're not very... We've tried to get rid of them. Okay, before anybody gets upset. <laughs> I mean, we as a human population... Yes. Talk about a group of people that have been kicked and beat and everything terrible imaginable for as long as they've been around. Right. It's pretty amazing. No, it is. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I was thinking of, of the two that were I, – I, I don't remember seeing a Jew on screen. No, they're not. They're just referenced. Right. Right. But it is one of those things where it's critical, you know, as part of the story that you do – it's a center for all three religions. And, yeah, you have no Zionists that are running around doing, you know, god-awful things either. I mean, so presumably all three religions are coexisting, maybe not peacefully, but as close as it's ever gotten. Well, in in every book that I've read, mm-hmm. actually, it says that the the Jews actually preferred to be ruled by the Muslims. 
because they had sure. a, they had a harder time under under the Latins. Well, they didn't kill the Muslim savior. No, no, that's again. That's <laughs> you know, there's the fear of the internet. Is people take what yeah. you're saying is your literal beliefs, but that was the perception. That was absolutely, and some people unfortunately still have that. Sure, perception. of course they do. Yeah. Okay, the- and this is about the worst cinematically part of cinematic part of the movie, in my opinion, because you have a huge event here. And it's sort of silly. Well, I like the underwater shot. I do. That is very, very aesthetically pleasing. But they wash ashore. It's just there's really no good sense of geography as to where they were in their journey. Oh, yeah. Are they in Cyprus? Right. Are they they near Acre? I mean, heck, from everything you see, it's like they should be nowhere close to any lands. Yeah. No, that, that's fair. And the thing that got me, and I don't remember this at the time I saw it in the theater, but he still, thank God he still has that sword. He's got the sword. You know, that, you know, it's not even strapped to him, but somehow he made it through that, that storm with his dad's sword. Yep. And he dried off really quickly. Right. And man, they've got good hair product back in the 1200s. 12th century, maybe. Yeah, that's probably Vino. Yeah. So... This this tolerance between the two main religions mm-hmm. that that's really like a fantasy that never existed. So Godfrey doesn't mention the massacres that the Crusaders practiced when they took over the Otremir, where the Christians at Saladin had executed for trespassing on Muslim roots. And some would say that this is painting a a tolerance that that mirrors what the Bush administration tried to paint Iraq with after the Second Gold War. Oh look, the Shias have freedom now, and they'll all get all get along. And we found out pretty quickly that that, that was not the so, not so. Mm-hmm. Um, how, I will say, but after the initial conquest of after the first crusade and the initial conquest of the kingdom of Jerusalem and the establishment in, in the north, the massacres on the whole stopped because the Franks realized that they can't make money off of dead people. Right, but coming at it from a story standpoint, you need it to be a place of peace. You know, for the movie that they're going there to preserve this mythical piece. I don't care if it's historically accurate or not. It's It makes sense from a storytelling standpoint. Right, because you have conflict at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to have that conflict, you need to disturb. Right. And so what are you disturbing this Idyllic, yeah, right. Which this is this is idyllic. I mean, this is where this is almost Lawrence of Arabia esque, mm-hmm. right? You know, the dunes and and uh, Balian refusing to uh, to kill the servant, yes, because killing is not or not the servant, but the Lord. But because the, the servant because is the servant in his eyes, right? But it's not it's not necessary. So no. I'm not going to kill unless it's unless it makes necessary. sense, right? I have no desire to fight, right? And I don't want to paint the picture that there was no honor in the Utremir. Mm-hmm. There, there was a lot of honor in the Utremir, and a lot of the interaction between the Franks and the changing disposition of the Muslims that surrounded them. Mm-hmm. A lot of that was based on honor, and I don't think that it would last it as long as it had had they not had honor, right? Because they had these agreements. Which was, okay, we're not going to raid the caravans that are moving from Damascus to Cairo, and you won't disturb the pilgrims that are coming into Jerusalem. And that worked for 70 years. That's 
you that's know. a forever back then. Yeah, it absolutely, absolutely, and it was these assholes like Guy de Lusignan and you know Renaud de Chantillon who you know really fucked everything up mm-hmm. for sure, and and that is true. Okay, like, like any account that you that you read of it, those two guys were jackasses. It, absolutely, absolutely. And we'll get into to why. Um, and Guy de Lusignan, I mean, there's a historical inaccuracy that I that I don't care about. Mm-hmm. You know, Guy was born in France. He was the second son, but he never met Balian in France because Balian was not from France. And anyway, he was already married to Sibylla years before this. So a lot of people actually ask why she married him. Of course, she didn't have a choice. That was one reason. She was 15. But why did Baldwin choose Guy when there were better suitors? And that's a better question. It's probably because Baldwin thought that he had to marry his sister to someone he would pick as opposed to someone that he would have no say over. Mm-hmm. He had a say over Guy because he was not in, in Regency yet. Uh, but that was coming, and that, that may be uh, why he chose. And we're kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but this this is kind of essential if you're going to understand what's happening in the background of the movie. Baldwin was a leper. Yes. And from from his teenage years, mm-hmm. they knew that he was sick. Right. And he became king. I think he was, he was 14 and he assumed power immediately. So there was, there was a, a, a regency. I, well, almost of two years, I think uh, when he turned 16, they they literally passed him the crown. Uh, mm-hmm. Raymond of Tripoli was his, his regent who was played by uh, Jeremy Irons in right. this film. And, and Baldwin, knew that as he got older, he was just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker. So he needed strong men to become regents. Mm-hmm. And it was this battle of, well, Raymond is my regent and I was younger. Maybe he can be my regent when I'm older if he survives that long. But more importantly, because Baldwin's father was king and there's two other siblings, Isabella and Sibylla, mm-hmm. It, it made a lot of sense to find them capable husbands right? so that when Baldwin died, since everyone knew that he could not have a child, it made a lot of sense to marry them off to capable people and then pass the crown on to one of them. So there was this fight over who was going to marry the sisters. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Guy de Lusignan won out in that fight. And there are a lot of people that think that if you just found somebody else, someone from France who was more capable... And Assuming those people were growing on trees and available. Right, right. Exactly. I mean, it could be one of those things where that was the best option at the time. Boy, you should have seen the alternatives. <laughs> well, yeah. And and um, and I remember reading somewhere that, that there there were less than a thousand French nobles in the Intramere. Okay. And so, I mean, that sounds like a lot. But when you take into a fact, okay, that's that's your dating pool. How, yeah. many, how many are kids? How many are men? How mm-hmm. many are how capable? Many how many ancient are age of 32? High enough of uh, not just age, but wealth and mm-hmm. status. And Guy fit he, that. Mold. He was in that 2%. Right. Hell, he may have been the only He may dude. have been the only one. Yeah. This... This whole sequence, this is part of that set that uh, uh, was in the Better Pirates movie that never got made. <laughs> yeah, it was planned for that, but they, they modified it. But uh, I've always thought this this sequence. You know, my brother's going to Jerusalem next year, I think okay. next May, and I, I wish I was going with him. He's going with a, with a church group, um, but, but I just found this pro- probably one of the most compelling 
parts of the movie. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, actually. I, I really did enjoy this. And, you know, this shot right here, this was where I think I would have been much more satisfied with the movie as a whole had it kind of lived in this zone. Yeah. You know, it's hard to define exactly what that is or hard for me to you know, adequately describe it. Well, it goes more into his personality and his character and his devotion as a person than what he's truly concerned about, which is his soul. Mm-hmm. He's he's concerned overall most with most things his soul, and he's not willing to sacrifice that for anything. No, and he proves it. He's a pretty stand-up gentleman, right? Right, and that may be mythical, but like you say, for the story, it's a pretty good story. Yeah, it's a much better movie. Yes. Absolutely. Because I'll take all sorts of inaccuracies as long as the story is entertaining. I mean, JFK is balderdash, but it's an entertaining movie. Yeah, just I wish that they had, I don't know, it would have been neat if they showed more of the Church of the Holy oh, sure. Sepulcher. And yeah, there's a lot of things that of I think would have made it and, you know, that probably an even better movie. Another 20 minutes or something, but. Well, you know, we're in it for almost for three, almost three and a half, it feels like. So, yeah, why not? This is one of those things that would have been, you know, from take from the recapables, it would have been better as a 10 episode Netflix show. <laughs> so, yeah, this is like the scene that I was talking about where if they didn't have all of the members of his father's party perish before this point, would have made this a little bit easier to believe. Right. Like, oh, you're his son. How? Because you know how tall he was and what color his eyes were and you have his sword. Okay. You're legit. Yeah. And Jerusalem had been in Christian hands for 75 years by this point. Okay. So um, most of the nobles in Baldwin's court were old grandchildren or really old children of the First Crusade. So Baldwin himself was born in 1161. That's six decades after the First Crusade. His father, Amalric, was born in 1135. His grandfather was born in, in 1089 in France, so he was 11 during the First Crusade. Um, before that, it was a Christian city for a very short period of time, you know, because it, we, it, you know, you have that, and the like we were saying before, the Byzantines, and then the diaspora, and then the Jews. So to the Christians of the Latin kingdom, they're just taking back what was theirs. And to the Jews, they were just getting cast aside like we always meant. We're just, I just had that written down. We, we already hit that point before. Yeah. This is my wife's favorite scene. We're Why is Orlando Bloom just, you know, getting into the bath, uh, getting out of the getting bath. bath? Yes. This works for, her. I guess she's a human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He did a lot of sit-ups for this. Yes. So Muslims in the film are are referred to as uh, Saracens. Did you pick up on that? I did, but I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. Uh, that's not an accurate description, but that's what Christians called them at the time. Okay. And most Mos- Muslims called the Crusaders Latins. And that wasn't particularly accurate at the time. So they distinguished the Latins from the Greeks and the Armenians. So the Levant has always been this type of melting pot. Mm-hmm. And at the time in the 12th century, the Muslim world is divided. So there's these Seljuk Turks in Iraq. There's the Turks in Mosul who are different and there's Arabs and we're now in Syria, which the Christians have conquered in the first crusade, but which the Muslims took back in the second crusade. And then there's Arabs in, in Egypt called the Fatimids. And 
they are bad news for the Crusaders, okay. the Egyptians, especially when their boss, Saladin, unites them and the Syrian Arabs. And this is why initially the Crusaders were so successful, because the Muslim world was very divided, and the uniting of that world is why the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem fell. So it's almost, they don't really go through it, but the 20 years previous to the Battle of Hattin, Saladin basically spends his entire time defeating his other enemies inside the Muslim world. He's uniting the uh, the groups. Right. As best can be done. Right. And the Christians were, until in, until Baldwin's reign, the Christians were very good about uh, keeping them divided, about having treaties or wars that were that had a very specific intent, which mm-hmm. is to keep the Muslim world divided. So Sibylla of Jerusalem, Eva Green. Yes. I Again, this is one of those situations where I remember... The character from the first film, but when I watched the director's cut, I was like, "Wow, that's Eva Green." Oh, really? She's that marginalized was, in the uh, theatrical? Yes, or her storyline rather. Uh, yes, absolutely. She, you would be shocked. She, I, I did not remember her. Like I remembered the character, but I did not remember her at all. She had no role. Hmm. She had no role. Basically, rode up, grabbed some water, and was gone. Yes, never to be seen well, again. Well, well, they had sex because you, oh, yeah. you have to do that. But, yeah. Well, yeah, it's Eva Green, right? And she likes these period pieces. You know, she was in the the sequel to 300, and mm-hmm. she's done a lot of stuff from the ancient But she world. was also in one of the Sin City movies, so I think she likes getting paid. Well, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with getting paid. <laughs> no, there's not. No. Absolutely. Here and here. Mm-hmm. Your conscience... Your hard mind. Yeah, and so this is when he inherits his barony, right? Right. The barony of Ebeline, uh, which was a real place and in a, in a, a real definable area that the Ebelins actually controlled. But my biggest problem with that whole sequence where he shows up with his barony, he just starts helping people build everything. It was, it's sort of, it's weird. Yeah. It's the, just. The, it, it makes sense, but it's just weirdly handled. Yeah, the stupid Arabs don't know how to dig a well. You know, it's kind well, of. See, I didn't even look at it like from that standpoint, but a, I guess it's a legitimate point. Kind of a colonial parental, right? You know, it justifies the Crusader experience, and it makes a hero out of Balian in the process, and it's very demeaning, and it makes it out as, as serfs or slaves, which of course they are. You know, it doesn't matter what religion they are. Even in France, if you have serfs, mm-hmm. they're slaves. That's right. just what they are. And I mean that's a white savior trope and the white man's burden and Kipling and all that bullshit. This really happened. Um, the marshal of Jerusalem would would execute Christians who violated the truce to satisfy whoever was offended on the mm-hmm. other side. That happened. So okay, Brendan Gleeson, great Irish actor. Yes, uh, and he's really good in this movie. Yeah, Reynaud de Chantillon, who is just a famous asshole. Uh, even in his own lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was another one of these second sons who, who had come over and he married uh, the right woman uh, whose father had died and the inheritance passed to him to control, uh, which was um, north of Jerusalem. And so Jeremy Irons plays uh, Raymond of, of Tripoli. And in Baldwin's court, you Raymond of Tripoli and, and Balin 
of Evelyn mm-hmm. were on one side of the court, and then Guy de Lusignan and, and Renaud de Chantillon were on the other side of the court, and it was like the, the royal family was caught in the center of these two warring factions. And of course, uh, Balian and Raymond were born in the Utremir, and Reynaud and Guy were not. Okay. And so there's this historical perspective, which is that the 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 fanatics, the mm-hmm. zealots, are showing up and they're fucking everything up. Right. Which may or may not be that is accurate, lo- but it's logical. Yeah. You know, you see it a lot in story and in life. People show up and we know what to do better than you do. It's like, oh, this is going to work out badly. Well, and, and that was a, a, a problem that I think the film showcases very well, which is you, you have these people constantly influxing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm here to kill Muslims and I'm not here to abide by any peace, right? right? Now, to, to a large extent, that's actually, um, I don't want to say it's his, historically false, but you know, the idea that there was a peace during this time is absolute rubbish. The Baldwin had been in, involved in so many wars, mm-hmm. even up to his death. Uh, there was no peace. There was no truce. It was it was just a matter of the, they had to fight these people, then they had to fight these people, then they had to go back. And like, the armies crisscrossing the Levant were, is absolutely staggering. I can't keep it all in my head. Mm-hmm. Um but the zealots did have this this mindset and this influence inside whatever uh, organization they inherited or that they were pushing in uh, that they weren't going to abide by the peace. And of course, uh, Reynaud's uh, uh, when he hits that caravan later in the in the film, that's that really happened, and that's a perfect example of of that type of zealousy uh, zealousy zealousness zealousness. <laughs> yes, thank you. Getting in the way, potentially of, even overzealous of, of a political rally that should not have been, you know, if he had not hit that caravan, yeah, you know, it th- that was really not the first step, but it was the second step in mm-hmm. a, a very bad series of events. Yes, ended in Hattin. Look at that. Yeah, it's it's very pretty. I mean, again, like I think this is one of the scenes that was shot in the Alhambra, and I mean that's just absolutely gorgeous. And mm-hmm. and I remember something like that. That is literally, I think it's like twelve hundred years old or thirteen hundred years old. Like the room that they filmed this in, and that's the power of Ridley Scott. You know, if Ridley Scott wants to film in the Alhambra, mm-hmm. Spanish government's going to say yes. Yeah, he'll definitely make it look nice, and he's got some. Yeah, he's got some stroke. Yeah. Everybody wants to please him. I think the goatee makes this actor, the guy playing Guy. I've seen him without a goatee, and it's just not very impressive. I don't even think I've seen him in anything else. I'm sure I have, but I certainly can't place it. Of course, I'll watch Jeremy Irons in anything. Yeah, he is really... And it's, it's another... This movie has the same repeating thing for me where we have these interesting characters that kind of depart with very little fanfare and aren't in it near as long as I would like them to be. Because he leaves before the great battle of Jerusalem, which I thought was just like, oh, that's a lost opportunity. You know, his character does. Yeah. So, um, 
William Monahan, the screenwriter, uh, they asked him why he changed uh, Raymond of Tripoli's name to Tiberius, mm-hmm. which is Jeremy Irons' character's name, and this is Tiberius, uh, even though the his name was Raymond of Tripoli. And he said that it was too confusing because he had Raynaud of Chantillon. It was too many R's, Raynaud and Raymond. He didn't want people getting confused. I, I think that was a brilliant choice. Yeah, that makes sense. Considering there's a very small percentage of the viewing public who would say, wait a second, right. you got his name wrong. Well, it does help distinguish it. It does. Um, I want to talk about... Uh, I mean, how many people were confused with Sauron and Saruman? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, it's like... Yeah. Not me, but that doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. What matters is people were to begin If they with. changed the name of, you know, Saruman, it would have been like, I can see why they do that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they didn't. Yeah, me too, but I wouldn't have necessarily held it against him if they had. So uh, Eva Green's appearance here, um, I really, one of the things that, that really Scott had in his in his introduction to to the director's cut was he really wanted to emphasize Sibylla of Jerusalem, and he felt like she got a bad she got a bad rip in history, mm-hmm. and she got a bad rip in when they cut her out of of the of as the you were film. saying earlier, yeah. yeah. And it's 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 substantial. It's like thirty five minutes of screen time. Okay, that's that she's in that's cut out. And, and her son, too. And even during production, they had two scripts that they were working off of. And one was called uh, Without Boy, and the other one was called With Boy. And that was Baldwin V, okay. Sibylla's son. But in most of the scenes with, with Baldwin V, Sibylla's in the same scene. So they got rid of that whole right. subplot. and Right. Okay, so we'll drop that for now. we got to get into Baldwin IV. Okay. which is played by Edward Norton, which I got to say, I saw his name on the poster, went to go see the film, left the film, and was like, where the fuck was Edward Norton? <laughs> well, I understand that he didn't even want himself uh, credited in the film. Really? Yeah. I remember reading that somewhere, which doesn't make it true, but I believe that, yeah, it was like he didn't want himself credited because it would be that type of thing. It was like, people, oh, we're going to go see Edward Norton. It's like, where is he? Exactly. Right. Yeah. They do a very good makeup job, obviously, under under the mask. Mm-hmm. Baldwin the Fourth, by the way, did not wear a mask. Um, How unfortunate for his subjects. Right. But I got to say, as a filmic element, very oh, powerful. Yes. That scene of him, uh, not at Hattin, but outside the wedding party, when mm-hmm. he rides up on his horse in the desert to face Saladin, mm-hmm. and he's got that ornate mask on, like. And, and the true cross is over his shoulder. Oh, yeah. I, that's that's it's amazing. Very well done. Yeah. And there's the really funny look at his eye. They even put a contact in his, his Baldwin. You know, this is the some attention to detail in this film is like shocking. Mm-hmm. Okay? Baldwin was actually going blind at the end of his life because the leprosy was so bad. Right. So he could hear and he could speak with a lisp, a heavy lisp, because the leprosy was affecting his mouth. Uh, but he was he was going very very badly blind, and they even cared to put contacts in Norton's eyes to to convey that. Then of course the the chess set, like, you know, the the Muslims uh, had a game that they invented. Um, I think it was around the eight or nine hundreds, which resembled very strongly chess and the crusaders had taken it back to Europe and they changed all the pieces to what we commonly now see as the rook and the bishop and okay. the king and the queen and to, to introduce that into, into the film. I so thought the Muslim was, version didn't have the bishop. No, they, it had, it, yeah, it had a different, Sorry. well, they didn't have, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the, what the, the pieces were. Sure. 
but it, it was a common game in the Muslim world and the Christians adopted it. This scene was missing too. This whole. Now I see why this could be. Yeah. You know, this one is one of those that's just a small, this is kind of flourishes that does make the movie better, mm-hmm. but I could see where it wouldn't be considered critical to the storytelling arc. I mean, aside from go to your place that's your, that's your father's, but beyond that, it's not critical necessarily. Well, I guess this part, say so rather Jews and the Muslims. Yeah, and so and to give a little bit of background there, that would not have been easy. Not uh, Balin, of course, was born in the Levant, and his father was not, so it wasn't a really big deal when when Baldwin of Iblin died. Everything went to his son Balian. But the the High Court of Jerusalem. Um, the way that that worked was because they had chose after the first crusade, all the nobles got together and they chose which one of them was going to be king. And it wound up being Godfrey of Bouillon, who never would have had a chance to be anything but a, uh, but a Duke back in, it wasn't even France. I think it was, it was like Southern Belgium or something. Uh, But they, they decided that the high court of Jerusalem was actually going to run the show. As time went on, when when Godfrey died, his his brother Baldwin the first took over. He was actually a very strong personality, mm-hmm. so he he effectively bent the high court to his will, and that led the the entire Uchermere onto a path of 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 success. Okay, and so when you're going through Baldwin the first, Baldwin the second, Baldwin the third, and then Amalric, um, you go through a, a path of effectively personalities who who die too quickly. And you go from weak king, strong king, weak king, strong king. Amalric, Baldwin the Force Father, was was very. He was invading Egypt. He was taking. That's a pretty ambitious dude. Yes, he invaded Egypt three times and persistent. Yes, and and convinced uh, the Venetians to 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 float their navy there, and then another time he convinced the Byzantines to uh, to take uh, Alexandria. Like this, this was warfare on, I mean, for the Uchermere, this was an epic scale. Yeah, that's right? significant. And then Baldwin, the fourth comes along. So, but, but the high court, when, when, when Amalric died, the high court actually got together to ask, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Because they knew that Baldwin, the fourth had leprosy. And at that time, what they should have done was chosen another member of the aristocracy to take over. Mm-hmm. But they chose instead to, to stay with the king only because Raymond of Tripoli was available okay. to be regent. And that was a mistake. What they should have done was, was, uh, and what Raymond should have done is I am the regent until further notice because mm-hmm. he survived Hattin. Okay. So if, if they had done that, I, I really think that, that despite Saladin's success, the, the Latin kingdom would have lasted much longer than it, than it had. But it, because they gave power to Baldwin, and, and Baldwin had to constantly try to jockey, well, am I going to run it, or is Raymond going to run it, or is Guy going to run it? Because of that whole interaction, and the High Court just fell into those intrigues mm-hmm. instead of supporting any singular right vision or leader. Right. But what I was trying to get at, like uh, uh, in this case, uh, even though ebelin belonged to balian's family the high court would have had to grant him because he was a bastard they would have had to grant him this land he couldn't just walk into it Mm -hmm. so i 
they trunk not truncated it, but they kind of simplified it by saying Baldwin is which you will go to your father's which lands. makes sense. I mean, it is one of those that you have to expedite some things, right? And now, do you really think? Okay, so earlier you'd said where they presented this as you know the white man showing them how to do things. Do you think that's really the case, or is it because I mean they're all busy digging? They're they're doing stuff. That's a pers- I mean, as much as anything, I just kind of took it as showing his leadership, which is, you know, critical to the character, right? And that he works alongside his people so that they believe in him. And, you know, he has vision and leadership, which, you know, there he is digging a hole along with the rest of the dudes. Yeah. Well, that's that's how I see it. Right. That's just a criticism of it. It's, it's, like, it's like Black Hawk Down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you well, know, there's an article in the Guardian that calls Black Hawk Down racist because it's this white army that goes to to Africa and starts shooting black people. There was one one mm-hmm. member of the of the Ranger outfit in Africa who was an African American. So it's historically pretty accurate. So it's historically very accurate, and he's in Black Hawk Down. Right. Uh, so to call so that's kind of when you're looking for something. I I think that's a stretch calling yeah. Black Hawk Down racist because a white army goes to Africa. is well, like. I could see where you could call it racist just from making the movie in and of itself, right? I don't necessarily agree with it, but I could see that argument. Saying, oh, so you're making yes. a movie about white people killing. Why? What's the objective? Right. And I can understand that, right? I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can understand that. But if you look at the story within it, story in quotes, because it's not really a story, right? It's more of a first person. You are there, you know. Getting involved in the action yeah, horror show—that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, if you're looking for that, actually being racist, like, okay, now you're just looking for something. Now, if you want to say, okay, you shouldn't have made it because this, that, and the other thing, I said, don't agree with it, but I can totally get the viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's kind of like this movie. It's like, why would you make a movie where, which you know, the Muslims are bad guys or the Christians are bad guys? You obviously have a political agenda, and that may not necessarily be the case. It's like, no, I just right. think the story is interesting. Well, I don't I don't actually think that, you know, and I think a lot of film is this way. I don't think that William Monaghan or Ridley Scott had oh, no, no, I'm just saying, a, I'm just saying people, you, I could see where a criticism like that would come from. Yes. Right? Yes. It's like you're making this movie, obviously you've got a political agenda, whatever it is. Right. And that is usually pretty inaccurate. I don't think that lots of times they're as clever as we like to think that they are. I, I don't think so. I think that they're aware of, oh, sure. of what's going on. Uh a lot of times, I don't think that they fully understand. Like Don Siegel, you know, mm-hmm. to 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 his dying day, uh, refused uh, any any implication that invasion of the body snatchers was about communists. Okay, that's what he said. I believe it. I mean, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it certainly could be interpreted very easily as that. Yes, but and, I mean, if that's not what he was thinking, he was making it. Right. He's either lying to himself or. He just literally didn't think that. Right. So why is he lying on his death, or is he lying, so to speak, on his deathbed? Yeah, and so when it when it comes to these situations, like obviously William Monaghan and Ridley Scott are very bright people. Yes. They understand that the images on their screen are going to be interpreted in certain ways, but it's it also might be one of those things of once you got the movie cut together and mm-hmm. you put it and you and it's cogent and it's on screen, things come out mm-hmm. which didn't normally intend right it wasn't necessarily the intent sure. right and and balian being the you know the the white leader of the arab arabs of Erbilin, mm-hmm. i think just had an unintentional oh sure and, interpretation yeah and also i mean 
I'm a white guy, so you know I'm obviously gonna have a different perspective. Right. Right. I'm gonna look at. It. Of course, he's not being like that. It's silly. I mean, of course, you know. <laughs> Hey guys and gals, just be patient. Dave and I stepped out for a smoke and a flush, but we'll be back in real time so you don't have to hit pause like we did. Thanks. Okay, so... Sibylla of Jerusalem, and I mentioned before how Ridley Scott thought that she got the short end of the stick in, in history and in the screenplay and most of her scenes were were cut in the mm-hmm. film and I wanted I wanted to go over this because there was there was a lot of confusion when I saw this in the theater and a lot of it was cleaned up in the director's cut and then again when I when I went through my readings so this goes back to it goes back to the, the reality of the situation which is that Sibylla was born in the Utremere Okay. And she actually had a slight accent because if you were born in the Utremere, your French was not like the French from France. And some French look down on that mm-hmm. as they, they do today. Um, she actually adopted many aspects of Eastern culture, just like a lot of the Franks who had gone to the Utremere had done. And then as they had children and their children had children, you know, these people don't, they've never been to France. Right, it doesn't mean anything to them. You're, exactly. And and so when I when I saw Eva Green, just like covered in hennas and wearing mm-hmm. all this, like she, like I actually didn't know her relevance as a character when she first popped up in, in the original cut uh, because she didn't look like a Christian. Right. She looked more Eastern and mm-hmm. more Oriental and... That was cool to see, but it was confusing. Had no idea why I was there. Right. But if, if you watch the director's cut, it's, I won't say that it's explained better verbally, mm-hmm. but it's her presence over time gets you more used to the idea of what's truly going on. Right. And of course, uh, in the, uh, anytime you read a, a, a book on it, it's, it's going to go into way, way into depth on the specific things that changed. That's another of my wife's favorite shots. No, at the uh, prayer sequence? N- no, Orlando Bloom with his shirt. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, it may be that I just wasn't as focused as I needed to be. But even with the director's cut, you know, I found her actual character initially very confusing. Like, as to who she was. Because when she was talking about this not adultery. And to be honest with you, I thought she was Balin's wife. Oh, because, you know, maybe it just wasn't clear to me or I'm just not sharp enough or whatever. So it took quite a while even watching this. And I watched it admittedly most recently a couple nights ago. Right. Yeah. So but it was kind of funny that it was like, oh, it's still not 100 percent clear. And that was one of those things where the even longer version, which certainly exists somewhere, because Ridley Scott, I think he'd redo a lot of his movies if he could. Yeah. Recut them. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Almost as bad as Oliver Stone, but probably not quite as bad. You know, he'd probably still add more things to it. Because I do think that this is probably one of those scripts that's maybe 240 pages. Yes. You know. Yes, this is well over 200 pages. And for our listeners, the general rule to go by is one page per minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, you know, that's all true. Um, now that you that you say that, mm-hmm. 
I mean, it does... Because we meet Gouda Lusignan in France before we even get to the Utremere. And then when we're in the Utremere, she doesn't spend a whole lot of time with her husband. Mm-mm. They don't particularly like each other. Right. Which was true in real life. They they didn't get along. Um, all of that, I, I can see how that can really confuse the viewer. Like, you're, you don't even know that they're married, really. No. I mean, you really don't get the sense of it at all. Yeah. So when they have this affair... Mm-hmm. Uh, which we know didn't really happen in real life, but that doesn't matter because Balian is supposed to be a fictional person here. Mm-hmm. It, a lot of people, particularly in the first the first time I saw it, it was like a so what. Yeah, it didn't matter. I can see why. Right. So she's the sister of the king, but mm-hmm. we don't really put it into the context of her husband is actually the the regent to be. Considering her child is underage and, and Baldwin has no child, it the emphasis really should be much harder on on Guy because Guy is going to be running the show after mm-hmm. this. Guy is responsible for Hattin. He's responsible for the fall of the kingdom. He's responsible for the Battle of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and he's held captive uh, after for a very long time. And he is used. Uh, Saladin uses Guy to get the other cities of the kingdom to fall. Acre and and. Uh, Jaffa and mm-hmm. all those places, which again, like the fall of Jerusalem, not again, but when Jerusalem falls, it's not the fall of the entire kingdom. There are holdouts. Right. And Saladin's got to go from holdout to holdout to holdout. And he uses the captives from Hattin uh, to affect uh, those castles mm-hmm. uh, falling down. I think only, I think Acre is the only one that doesn't fall. Just says, nah, forget it. Right. Now, of course, in the grand scheme of things, you know, Third Crusade. Uh, Richard the Lionheart shows up, uh, uh, what, like 10 years later mm-hmm. with his enormous army and and reconquers 90% of what was lost. But that only lasted for like another century. And That's was, quite a while, was, though, because I'm sure that, you know, we're talking about time in a very different way, right? A hundred years now is two generations. Yes. Whereas before that was probably five or six. Right, right. So a hundred years is almost an eternity. It is, but yeah, when you're only living to thirty, right? Yeah, no, that or twenty five or twenty five. Yeah, no, that, that's a valid point. So a hundred years is, you know, two or three hundred. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I know you know what I mean. Yeah. See, and it's still not even clear to me watching it for a third time that she's married to Guy at this point. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, when I watched it most recently. I thought the, almost the coronation was almost not the marriage, but symbolic of the marriage that had just happened or was going to happen in the near future, more as opposed to that they have this pre-existing relationship, because that's really not well established at all. Right. And it's not critical, of course, but it is one of those that it's one of those multitudes of things. I look at it and go, eh, I'm going to change this. Would have made this a little bit more emphasis on that. Right. So Agui was not with uh, Renaud when Renaud pulled this raid. Um, it was hard to get Guy out of Jerusalem, from what I've read. Kind of a homebody? Yeah. <clears throat> and Renaud, like, this was a very specific raid that, I mean, Renaud was known for, for being an ass and pulling stuff. And he... And he 
and you kind of have to put this into context too. When Raynaud was younger, mm-hmm. and when he first came to, um, not Tripoli, uh, this the county in the north where he was actually married this woman and and therefore became the lord of all of her lands. He was actually in a battle. And he was taken captive. Okay. And he was captive, I think, for over five years. That's a forever again. <laughs> right. And it was not a happy circumstance, as you can imagine. Sure. Like, he was of noble birth, so he had it easier than, say, some others. You know, he wasn't slain on the battlefield or mm-hmm. anything. But when he got out, he was so embittered by the captivity that he just had it in his mind that he just could not live in this mm-hmm. uh, structured society that that tolerated you know muslims and arabs walking among them Mm -hmm. he just didn't have it in his framework so that's kind of missing in the story from my perspective like i think that would help the film a little bit of justification in that regard why is reynaud such an ass right why like we understand that he's evil but why is he is he right like i you know i don't want in a separate film about reynaud but no but brendan gleason is just so powerful as an actor it works and and, and he really comes across as this overbearing asshole, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that would help if they added that information. So, but the, the caravan in question, how how that was in, in immediately resolved was, um, Saladin cried foul, and sent an embassy to Jerusalem, and Baldwin really took Reynad to task over it. And said, you have to apologize and you have to return all of the stuff that you stole and you have to compensate the families of the victims, which was a standard protocol for, for, for the time for a, yeah, for a, a an aggression like that. Uh, it did not automatically mean a war. Sure. And so, uh, Raynaud refused and basically told Baldwin, make me and Baldwin's enforcer was Guy. So that's going to be tough to pull off. <laughs> right. So going to Guy and saying, hey, you know your buddy Reynad, you got to get him to pay Saladin mm-hmm. money for, like, that That was unrealistic. That was not going to happen. So when 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 that fails to happen, Baldwin realizes that, the, that this crisis is going on, this split is happening in his court, and he's got to do something. And that's when he actually uh, throws, Paul, this is so funny. This is very strange. Baldwin throws a coup in his own government. Okay. To put uh, Raymond of Tripoli back in charge of the Regency. <laughs> so he's throwing a coup not to put himself in charge of, of his own kingdom. Right. Somebody else. <laughs> but put someone else in charge because he knows that he's too infirm to do right. it. And and that works. That coup works uh, in the short term. And, and Saladin, uh, I don't think Saladin is ever paid. Uh, but Reynaud takes a, takes a hammering after that. And, and is exiled from the kingdom for a while. And everything just kind of takes a breather. Everything just takes a pause. But, you know, Raymond uh, hands back power to, to Baldwin, and then, then Guy and Reynaud just go right back where they, they started, and, and everything just slides back into chaos okay. for, within a couple of years. So now that we're in full force in the Utremir, we can try to describe what it is. All Latin societies at the time were geared for warfare. Nobles resorted to violence as a matter of course and culture. In the Utremir, they behaved no differently. Not all settlers were religious zealots. Not all immigrants stayed. 
Some landowners gave up and went home. Some who did find their wives married other men. Latin Latins in the Utremir tried very hard to welcome pilgrims because they were a source of income and tried to get as many of them to stay. But the ambassadors that the Utremir sent to Europe to drum up immigrants and money were looked down on because of their lavish lifestyle. There's a lot of things about the Utremir that we don't know. We don't know how many people were there before the Crusades came. We don't know how many people were living there after the Crusades took place. We don't know how many pilgrims came every year or how many Christians immigrated to the Utremir or how many stayed long term. But it was a failure because essentially the Utremir had to be a military state to exist, even though it was constantly at war. The aristocracy consistently failed to do this. They needed a homegrown army and they never made one. It was always made out of immigrants, and it always relied on immigrations for its forces. The Utremir was a feudal kingdom, just like any other in Europe. The king gave fiefs to lords, and in return, the lord owed the king knights and foot soldiers. In 1180, this was only 5,000 soldiers out of the 50,000-man army that Baldwin managed to field. Only Jerusalem was banned to Muslim residents. All other parts of the Utremir courted Muslims as tax-paying residents who were protected under Crusader law. And many Latin lords made local deals with Muslim leaders like Saladin in order to attract Muslim settlers. One of the problems of the Latin kingdom were Christians did not want to live with Jews or Muslims, so the kingdom was very lopsided. Franks tended to want to settle near other Franks, but in these settlements there was a form of legal, religious, and racial apartheid, Mm -hmm. which doesn't surprise anybody. But this was no different than anywhere else in Christian or the Muslim world. Right. Um, Coptics and Armenians were always separated from Muslims in the quarters in Cairo and Turkey and Persia. So having said all of that, I'm going to quote Christopher Tyerman's book, God's War. Quote, to portray the Utremir as a haven of intercommunal, less interfaith harmony would be absurd. The Muslims of Galilee in the 1180s called Baldwin IV the pig and his mother, Agnes of Courtney, the sow. There were sporadic Muslim rebellions in the Principality of Antioch where their treatment alternated between economic encouragement and extortion. While in some areas Muslims remained unmolested, in others they fell under a harsh regime. Syrian Christians and Muslim converts could rise in Latin society, but there were few non-Latin aristocrats within the Utremir. Muslims preferred segregation. Some disapproved even of that, but the mosques operated openly. There were even mosques in Jerusalem outside the old city walls. Okay. But the, the Temple Mount, which today the Dome of the Rock is like the second most sacred place in all of, of uh, the Muslim religion... That at the time was occupied as by the Templars as their headquarters. That'd be a great insult at the time. Uh, amazing insult, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe the rock is where uh, Muhammad uh, Muhammad ascended directly into heaven, but it's also the rock that that is the physical rock where um, Abraham was going to sacrifice his son. Okay, and God stopped him. It's the same rock. That's where Muhammad was when he ascended into heaven. So it has a double meaning. But again, it's not just sacred to the Muslims. It's sacred to the Jews and it's sacred to the The Christians. Christians, And there was great cross-pollinization of respect, Mm -hmm. despite all of this warfare going on, where, you know, the Muslims had no intention of touching the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Of course. When they took Jerusalem. That that was not even a question. Mm -hmm. And Saladin would have slew anyone who even suggested it. But I've got a big problem with the shot at the end of the movie where Saladin picks a cross up off the floor because it doesn't belong there. It belongs standing up on a desk. Like, that's that's ludicrous. The idea that Saladin would take time to respect a, 
a Christian icon that's just cast away on the floor. The man spent his whole life dedicated to the belief that uh, Christians are occupying his land and and they, uh, as many of them as possible, need to be killed. Yeah, but in the context of the story that they're telling, it makes a lot of sense because they don't want to. They make a concerted effort not to paint him as a, you know, mustache twirling evil <laughs> bad guy, right? right. Yeah. Who I mean, really, yeah. the whole that whole side of the story is he's got a great reluctance, if not, you know, he an active dislike of the idea of invading Jerusalem, right? He wants to take it over, but certainly not through violence, right? That's the way it's portrayed. And his hand gets forced, reasonably so, but you can tell that the conversation with the young gentleman whose name I have no idea who it is, right? Mm. Oh, but, and he says, uh, I quake for Islam. Right, and he's, yeah. push, you know, he's pushing for it. It's like, okay, Saladin, in this story, he wants to capture Jerusalem, but only through noble means, so to speak. Yeah. So... I mean, he has nothing but respect for the people he has respect for, and the king is certainly somebody he had respect for in the context of this story. Oh, undoubtedly, and so, in his life, yeah. it was one of those things where I think – I can see where you would say that, but I think in the context of the story, it makes all the sense in the world and would be probably problematic with the way he was portrayed up until that point if he didn't do something like that. Just like when they're walking at the end and he makes sure not to walk on the cross. Yes. Right. And I, I don't know if in real life that would have any degree of realism, but, you know, for the point of the story and the way it's portrayed, it makes sense. It's consistent with this character. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I can I can tell you just after what I've read, like any time Saladin could purchase peace mm-hmm. instead of bleed for it. He'd do it. Well, yeah, because it's it, much more economical. Right. And that's the perspective that he looked at. Yeah. And he was... Uh, people, Wars are not cheap. No, no, they're not. <laughs> and and what I get from him as as a politician in, in the Arab and the Muslim world is like the man was exceptional. You're talking about a very fragmented place where the, the Uchermir itself was broken into four or five different principalities. Mm-hmm. And the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem was just one of them. Right. And and the Muslim world that surrounded it was broken up into to five or six and Saladin spent a large part of his career just moving from one to the other to the other to consolidate his control and power, Egypt being the biggest one. And once he had that under his, his belt, it was amazing. You know, he wasn't even Egyptian, mm-hmm. and he's running Egypt. He's a Kurd, so he's he's from northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I always found this is kind of strange because Iraq was littered with uh, uh, statues. Saddam Hussein erected statues of Saladin because, oh, look, he's an Iraqi. Well, no, not only was there no Iraq before 1926 right. or whatever, but Saladin was a Kurd who Saddam Hussein hated and exterminated mm-hmm. with every you know will at his disposal. So I always thought that that was kind of strange. But from from just from what I see, the man was just exceptional. Mm-hmm. Just and, and I think the movie does very well to portray him as this very honorable man. And now I think that's also a, a leftover from um, the stories, not only from from the Latin Kingdom, but after the Third Crusade, because Richard the Lionheart had fought Saladin mm-hmm. in the Third Crusade. The 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 personage and the myth of Saladin in Western literature for the next few hundred years just paints the man as this icon of truth and mm-hmm. and justice. And yes, he's not a Christian, but. But he's a remarkably honorable man. Absolutely. And and that stays to this day. And we'll get into the fall of Jerusalem and something that he did afterwards, which, which will astound you. But it, it, it really seems like most of that, 
even though he was a bloodthirsty tyrant, most of that... Who wasn't back then, though? Right. <laughs> most of that was true. There's the true cross. Yeah, and this is a very impressive shot. Oh, I can't believe this. And on the big screen, it's got to be quite remarkable. All the flags mm-hmm. and just the... Oh, my God, man. It... The dust, of course. So that, you were saying that that all this, well, not all that right there. That's a high percentage of that shot right there is CG. Right. Yeah, like, it's pretty well done. Like the, the front line is actually uh, volunteers from yeah. the Moroccan military. Mm-hmm. And then everything behind it is, is, a, is a program uh, that was basically designed for a video game uh, to, to place characters in the shot uh, and so that they would have their own free movement. No, oh my God, we're so far ahead of my notes. No, it's not a big deal. But this this scene didn't actually happen. Um, I assume you mean in real life because I'm watching it now going, yep, it's definitely <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was a wedding. It's okay. So, so Raynaud pulls off this heist effectively Mm -hmm. that even, even in Christian Europe, people were like, that was wrong. Right. Um, the Christians in the Latin kingdom knew that Raynaud was an ass and wanted Baldwin to do something about it. So that's the castle of Carrick, which is in the Utre Jordan, which is in across the West bank into Jordan, the outer Jordan, Utre Jordan. And that was one of the largest, um, sections of the kingdom mm-hmm. and Raynaud had that. I mean, it was almost a quarter of, of the kingdom and Raynaud used that because of the traffic that was going from Cairo to Damascus had to, to go through the Utre Jordan. And so Carrick was, Raynaud was just strategically placed to harass those caravans. And he just thought these people are on my property. I don't, that truce was made by the King. I'm going to do what I want. So there was actually a wedding going on. I'm not going to go into the details where it was a fascinating story. It was a wedding going on in Carrick at the time that Saladin's army had actually come across it. And um, uh, Raynaud actually had sent out a message to Saladin to let him know, dude, the cream of the crop mm-hmm. of, of the kingdom is in here. So um, there, there's a wedding going on inside. Please respect the, the, the confines of the wedding. And Saladin actually asked... Which tower is the is the couple taking refuge in? Because I don't want to disturb to hit their it honeymoon with, with my trebuchets. Yeah, right. so he honored it. Raynaud told him what the real tower was, and Saladin didn't hit it. This is an amazing scene. This how mm-hmm. Raynaud is is becoming penitent, and Guy's looking disgusted, and Baldwin just loses his shit. Just this is a, fascinating. And Raynaud trying to do like a Christ move here right. with his arms out. And, and just the acting, like the clothing, the blue of France. And how Baldwin didn't know that Guy was right there with him. Baldwin was not in that battle, by the way. So that scrimmage didn't didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So a message got out to, uh, to Jerusalem and Baldwin fielded an army 
and I think it was a day or two out from Carrick, mm-hmm. and Saladin's pickets picked it up and said, oh my god, like the entire Crusader army is on its way. And Saladin decided, you know, if I stay at Carrick, I could take the castle, but mm-hmm. I can't take it in two days. It was basically run my risk and have an enormous battle right? Um, that I can't really choose the ground on or retreat and fight another day. And he chose to retreat and fight another day, mm-hmm. and, and Baldwin saved the day. So that that part is true, but this face-to-face never happened. But it is. But it's very dramatic. It's very dramatic. It's very dramatic. And, I mean, just him and the canopy and, and Tiberius standing there and just the litter taking him away. I don't know what it is about the Leper King that's so fascinating. But it makes me want to watch this over and over and over and over again. The scene or this, this movie? This scene. This is a rewatchable right. scene. It is, yeah. Well, I mean, the acting by all the principals is tremendously compelling, right? There is a lot of storytelling that gets done pretty economically. You know, anything from uh, Brendan Gleeson's character doing the, the dependent Christ-like thing to Lever King making him kiss his <laughs> leprosy-infected hand... You know, geese looks. I mean, just so much of it works. Not that the rest of the movie doesn't, but I don't think it ever works as well as that particular scene. Uh, and we're intermission. intermission. Okay, I'm just going to skip forwards to the. Got Ren, Ren, well, Renata Chantillon. We already talked about what a bastard he was, mm-hmm. and oh, God. I'm going to skip that. Eject. Yeah. Eject. <laughs> I'm trying to find Interact. So uh, while we're experiencing what should be the Interact, I'll bring up something else that bothers me about the film, and that's the, the Braveheart-like supposition, if I can use that word, that Balian of Eblin had a relationship with Sibylla of Jerusalem, and this is one of those things that just doesn't make sense. Balian was married to Maria Comnena, who was the Dowager Queen of the Byzantine Emperor. It was literally his mother. Mm-hmm. And she had married again, and her full-blood cousin was the Princess Isabella, who was the daughter of King Amalric, Baldwin's father. So she was the half-sister of Sibylla of Jerusalem. So not only is Balian not chasing Sibylla's skirt, he's married to a political side of the family that is against Sibylla inheriting the throne. They'd rather see Isabella queen, and they eventually do. Sibylla had to give up her claim to the throne, and her sister took it over. In fact, when Sibylla crowns Guy in 1186, Balian actually says, fuck this shit, he leaves the kingdom for Cyprus. His brother Baldwin actually was up to marry Sibylla, but but Baldwin chose Guy instead. So the the Ebelins were these huge supporters of the crown, and Sibylla's marriage to Guy really turned them off, mm-hmm. and it split the court at a very crucial time. And Reynaud sided with the king, who was Guy, of course. So... What do we have next? The, we, we went through... Uh, i, I got to tell this story just real sure. quick. Because we, we, I mentioned before how my son and I saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia last mm-hmm. night. So we, we, we walk into the theater. Uh, I, I tell I tell Luke, just just get into the theater because I don't want you to miss anything. And Because we were running kind of late. And I went and grabbed the drinks and popcorn. So I show up at the, at the door to the theater and it, it opens and it actually um, hits my tray and spills my coffee, which is no big deal. But the guy who opens it I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I was like, oh, it's no big deal. Uh, and I asked, is the movie starting? He says, yes, but it's just music. There's nothing on the screen. Mm-hmm. 
And I said, oh, it's the overture. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so he was like, what? So I had to actually explain to him what an overture was, mm-hmm. um, which is they play the music before the movie actually starts because Lawrence of Arabia has that. Yes. He was dumbfounded. He had never heard of that before. It's not a very common practice. It's not. And so then I told him, I said, just to let you know there's going to be an intermission. And he didn't understand what those were either. I mean, we live in an age where epics are not. I, I can only think of two movies that I can remember. In your lifetime? In my lifetime that had intermissions. And I may be mistaken. Because I want to say my memory is The Right Stuff had one. I don't know if I'm right, but that's what my memory is. And I think the Roadshow version of The Hateful Eight had an intermission. Oh, oh, did it? I didn't see it, oh, but I, I remember reading that. That'd be cool. Yeah. Okay. So, the, yeah, this is the I Quake for Islam scene, mm-hmm. which which is amazing. Great acting going on here. So this guy who plays Saladin didn't mm-hmm. know English very well, um, but he was coached on on what to say and how to say it. I think he's got an amazing presence. He's a very popular actor. In, yeah, I could see where he would be Arab quite world. the movie star. He's got the face, doesn't he? Yes. You know. Now, I find this whole scene kind of bizarre because Saladin treats this cleric like shit, and that's a no-no. And you think he, he treats him like shit? Yeah, I think so. And and he sees God as somewhat distant and not involved too closely in humanity, and that's not really how a Muslim views the world. Yeah, but I think... Okay, so a lot of the, well, the two primary leaders in this movie at this time, right? You have the king and you have Mm -hmm. Saladin. Mm -hmm. Neither of them are terribly um, religious people, at least not as portrayed in the movie. They have a faith, but it's not driven by religion. Like um, the cleric whose name, I have no idea who it is, David Thewlis's character. Yeah, the hospitaler. Right, regarding his distaste for religion. Right. So I, I think that both of these characters are kind of not necessarily even yin and yang, but they are pretty much the same character, which is why they respect each other so much. So I don't know. That's just kind of my perception of it. I mean, yeah, from a realistic standpoint, is it accurate? I don't know, and I don't care. But <laughs> I, I, just, I don't because, you know, from the drama standpoint, it makes sense. Well, it, it does. It's just kind of strange. Like, this is a movie about the Crusades and the king. But well, as you said Jerusalem yourself, it's is, not a Crusades movie. Well, that's that's true. That's true. Yes. We have Crusaders, but, and they're, I mean, pretty much anybody who is acting on behalf of what they believe God would want are pretty much portrayed pretty poorly, with the notable exception of Orlando Bloom. Right. And he isn't even so much as what God wants, but as what he thinks God expects of him. Right. Which is two completely different Oftentimes. things. Oftentimes. Yes. Or probably should be. I'm I'm torn. I'm not just torn between the amazing drama of the film versus the the historical reality. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm torn between the the portrayal of of uh religion and the expectations in the film. And I don't know if it could ever be resolved. It's one of the things about the film that would just make it extremely fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, Baldwin the Fourth really thought that God had judged him okay. for some evil crime. That he doesn't know what it is, but he just accepted that's what it is. Yeah. Well, and there were some claims that he was, uh, you know, his father, Amalric, had to annul the marriage of his mother in order to gain the throne from his brother, Baldwin the Third. Sins of so, our fathers. Right. So there was a lot of people who thought that Baldwin's leprosy was God's manifestation of that sin. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a lot of evidence to think that Baldwin actually thought that as well, that I have leprosy because my parents' marriage was not legitimate. Sure. Now, that's ludicrous for us to think now, but you know, Baldwin went to church every day, mm-hmm. was a, a very devout Christian. Here's the bastard who plays the patriarch. of. And who is that? God, he's one of those guys. He's one, he's one of those guys. Yeah. And I can't play some. It'll probably be later, but... So here's here's a little fascinating uh, tidbit before we get back to the main topic. So the patriarch of Jerusalem, um, um, and see, okay, this this kind of mirrors what you were saying about Saladin, though, because he really disrespects this cleric. Yes, I mean, he really just says, "And I'll confess to God, not to you." Yes, you know, so that's why I kind of think of them as, like I said, mirror images, but I mean, not opposite. You know, they're not from the right. Star Trek mirror universe. They're no. no. <laughs> The evil Kirk. Right. Yeah. They're pretty... I mean, nobody has goatees. Yeah. Except for, you know... Well, you dare, Jeremy Irons, do you have a goatee? Not sure anymore. No, Jer- this, well... Yeah. Irons had a beard. Yeah, this jackwad. Yeah. Gee, Gee he's got yes. the, the evil goatee. Um, so, the patriarchate is like this very complicated thing that I'm not going to really go into, but, you know, obviously the, the patriarchate was, was, was Byzantine. You know, it was Orthodox... And there was an expectation after the First Crusade that that would be returned to the Byzantines. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Latins didn't it's do like, that. No, I yeah. wouldn't think so. They they kept the entire structure. They just filled they filled the church with Latins instead mm-hmm. of instead of uh, Orthodox. And this, of course, pissed off the Byzantines. Um, I cannot remember this. The scene at all was was not in the first one. I'm, and every time I watch it, I wonder why did why did Scott even consider putting it in into into the director's cut. It made no sense to me, but well, it makes some sense to establish his assholery. Yeah. Well, and that, that goes back to, okay. And and I'm sure there's one person who's listening to this still is like, what a dumbass, Mm -hmm. but are Gee and Eva married at this point in the story? Right. See, and that's still very unclear because he's saying, Oh, well you dream, you've thought about me being your husband or whatever it is. And there's kind of this, not an implication, but, they they are never clearly established in this narrative as man and wife, right? You know they obviously weren't from a practicing standpoint, but even from a formality, is really not well established in this movie. No, no, or, that's, or maybe that's, it is, and I've missed it. No, I, I mean, I I kind of got the drift. I, I did not get the drift at all the first time I saw it with the with the director's cut. I got the drift, but sure. it, it really needed to be spelled out. And I think Guy being in France in the beginning of the movie just confuses everything. Of course, I also didn't have subtitles on or the closed you know, captioning. You no, know, you know what would have done it is if there was a fucking marriage ceremony <laughs> somewhere before the interact or right. after Guy arrives in in France. So anyway, to get back very quickly to the patriarchate. Um, the the first uh, king of of the Latin Kingdom, uh, Baldwin the first, he had problems with the patriarch. Actually, you know, he was like, "I'm here from Rome, and I'm not doing your shit." And so they deposed him, mm-hmm. and so after that, the patriarchate was basically the king's stooge. Okay, and so that's where I kind of find this funny that that Baldwin's having this fight with the patriarchate because Who in it's reality very was well established was doing everything to know. Now, just... uh, the, the the trick comes like so when Baldwin here's the where the leper thing takes off when Baldwin was a kid. Uh, his tutor was Baldwin the Fourth was a child. His tutor was uh, uh, William of Tyr, who who was a historian. And his his book called the Historia is actually one of the three Latin chronicles of the entire Latin kingdoms, which is why we know so much about 
the events leading up to Hattin. Mm-hmm. He was not in Jerusalem when Hattin happened. And he, he, he fled, so a lot of things are hearsay that are finished by other historians. But he was actually um, uh, the guy who noticed that Baldwin was not reacting when he was playing uh, games with his childhood friends to pain. Mm-hmm. I think they were putting uh, like nails in each other's arms, and Baldwin didn't react. So William of Tyr was testing Baldwin's pain threshold on a different day, and then noticed he wasn't showing pain. He was like, oh my God, it's leprosy. He was the one who diagnosed him. Then later on, there was a uh, 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 an election f- to replace the patriarch, and this was when Baldwin was in the very last uh, years of his of his rule, and uh, he tried very hard to swing um, William of Tyr to be the patriarch, mm-hmm. which probably would have been the right move. Uh, however, um, Guy was in charge of the residency at the time, and he and Reynaud hated William of Tyr. So the other guy got in. So for the last few years of, of the of the reign, was this this patriarch was basically just doing what Guy and 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 Reynaud wanted to do. So that aspect is true. But in the film, of course, it's a lot easier rather than switch somebody midstream to have a, a consistent bastard in the same position. Mm-hmm. And I think the film does that fairly well. And then, of course, after the fact, it was kind of funny. Like the the the, the patriarch, um, not was not funny. The patriarch packed up all of his gold in in the from the Church of Holy Sepulchre, and he fled Jerusalem. And uh, he he refused to buy the the safety of the people who were still oh, in the okay. city, right? But he he had trucks and truckloads of of stuff. He did okay for himself. He he did he did while while everyone else was sacrificing everything that they could so to, to make sure as many people came out of Jerusalem as live as possible. He was like, nah, I'm kind of yes. I'm interested in number one. Exactly, and and I mean the parallel there is like I just remember you know another Liam Neeson movie at the end of Schindler's List. You know, mm-hmm. how many more Jews could I buy with my ring? How many more could right. I buy with my little lapel thing? Right, it's completely the opposite. Nice robe, you know, <laughs> yeah, made out of damask. Anyway. Um, so, so that was the patriarchate conversation. Where was it going? Was it Sibylla? I don't remember where the conversation was going before. Doesn't matter. Um, can we talk about Muslim representation in Hollywood? Oh, we can try. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, there's this and there's True Lies, <laughs> right? Which is horribly bad. Like great movie, bad representation. Well, is it? The reason I bring that up, or the reason I ask it like that, is that it's been a while since I've seen the movie, I'll admit that. But there is a character who's on Arnold Schwarzenegger's team who I believe is supposed to be Muslim. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen it in probably Right, well, there's a... Yeah, there's hit... There, uh, basically, the sharp one, right? There's, there's Tom Arnold, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, right. and then there's the third guy, right? Kind of the nervous, geeky dude. Right, and I may be way off, but my impression was that he was Muslim, or at least it may never be stated as that. That I look at it, it's like because yes, some of them are cartoon characters of right. Islamic extreme, you know, terrorists. Right, but I don't know if that's inherently awful. 
if you do have some kind of counterbalance to it. And that movie may not have it, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But it is one of those things where I'm not going to look at that movie and say, it's a terrible movie because... Because of that one situation. Because of this, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, I mean, he's a bad guy. And I don't even know if that it's ever actually connected to his religious beliefs. It might be, but not that I remember. It's like, oh, you're just a loon. But okay, but let's go back. And you've got Lawrence of Arabia. Right. right, which I which I think is very positive, despite the fact. I mean, there. I mean, Omar Sharif is in it. Omar mm-hmm. Sharif is an Arab. He's he's a Coptic Christian from Egypt. From e, uh, from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alec Guinness is basically in semi dark face, right? And so is uh, Anthony Quinn, mm-hmm. right? But I, you know, there's some parentalism going on in that film, but largely, I think that paints Arabs in a in a brilliant light and look look what it did to omar sharif's career he seemed to do okay you know and that guy i mean dr fucking Zhivago. Mm-hmm. yeah he was you know. he was quite the heartthrob at the time oh oh yes oh omar yeah so i, I mean I, I i i just don't think about it too much i'm not sure what other films you know have got any kind of real well let's not even say muslim because that's a religion right. Right. right let's say middle easterner yes which Probably is the incorrect term, but that's the one I'm going to use. Yeah, yeah, we're scrambling. Yeah. Well, Cecil B. DeMille famously directed an epic in 1935 called The Crusades, okay. which, which I have not seen. Nope. And he doesn't get a lot of DVDs printed anymore. No, he doesn't. Uh, but apparently that has every stereotype about Arabs imaginable. Okay. In 1935, I can see why. There's actually a, a book burn event in the film. And that crossed with the tearing down of crosses. It was hard not to draw correlation between that and Nuremberg mm-hmm. at the time. Okay. Right. So then, of course, there's this absolutely awful Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, which a lot of people lauded at the time because you had Oof. Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman sharing the screen together. Not that there weren't Moors in the Ultramere, but Moors and Saracens are not the same. Okay. Right. And the English would not equate them anyway. Arabs were very specifically called Saracens. So it's mostly a positive portrayal that I'm sure that we'll see again because it looks like we've stopped hiring non-Arabs to play Arabs. And then there's Art Malik, an American who was originally from Pakistan, who played the villain in True Lies. That's the guy. Who I've heard of that movie. Yes. And that was absolutely the worst stereotype that I remember. But like you were saying, it might be counterbalanced. I'm, right? well, it, I'm not even, I mean, I, that's one of those that open to interpretation. Some people would find it not counterbalanced at all. And some people would say, okay, there is. But I just hate it when it is so – when something is stated as fact like that. It's like, okay, this is definitely – it's like, well, I don't know. I need to see it again, right? But I do remember this. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. God, look at this scene. Look oh, at yeah. the depth of the shot. And this is when she checks on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is where he passes away. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of other movies and Conscious or Nothing. I'm sorry. No, Snorris. Yeah. Conscious or Nothing. And I don't know. This was a film that was released when there were new levels of intensity of feeling. Sure. Um, There were fresh memories of fear. Mm -hmm. And I think the subject needed to be handled with kid gloves. And I think that Scott, I think that Scott had a had a tough time balancing that. Okay. 
When you say he has a tough time balancing that, do you mean that he had a tough time um, accomplishing what you think his goals were, or you can imagine where this would be a challenge to portray it think, somewhat evenly? I think I think before nine eleven, it was very easy to put Arabs and Muslims on screen, and I okay. think I think after nine eleven, all of a sudden that becomes very complicated. Hmm. And you, you start having uh, uh, you know arguments uh, on TV, like Ben Affleck got into one, right? Where uh, and I, I don't remember who I think it was it was on Bill Maher, and Bill Maher was just trying to he make a blank like, statement, and Affleck was challenging him, and you know, and, and that guy isn't a. Oh, I'm not even going to go down the Bill Maher. <laughs> Fuck that guy! <laughs> Holy crap! Okay, but go on. Yeah, it's just uh, you know in it. In, in a very real sense, after 9-11, um, the Western world as a whole, and America very specifically, became much more aware of of the Muslim world and the Arab world and its its needs, its wants, and its desires and its sure. outlooks. And uh, I think that um, Scott was trying to balance that mm-hmm. uh, with in an epic scope. And I think in the process of doing that, he dropped the ball on the Western side. Okay. That, that would be one of my interpretations of what's going on in kingdom of heaven. Okay. Right. Like just without, without Balian, just mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. He's like that. Take Balian out and the Utremir does not look like a place that I want to be. No. Right. But it just doesn't seem like Saladin and his cohorts have the same problem. No. Which actually is not true. The the Muslim kingdoms that surrounded the kingdom of Jerusalem were in great chaos during this time. Mm-hmm. It was Saladin who, who joined them all together. I am not an Eva Green fan, by the way. Really? She, but the way the way that she shot in this movie is really as an actress or strike. from aesthetically pleasing. Just as an actress, just when I see Eva Green's name on a poster, I I think that she's a very beautiful woman. Okay. Yeah, and but I think that she shot very well here. Oh yeah. You know, and in the the three hundred sequel, which again I'm not a fan of that film. I've actually not seen that one. And she's in Casino Royale. Most people know her from Casino Royale. Oh, that's right, she is. And and I'm not a fan of her in that film at all. I I I don't think that she's just miscast. I think the director got exactly what he wanted to get. Mm. I just just didn't. I'm just not in for that ride, right? Even though I do like that movie. Gotcha. Yeah. There's Baldwin's. Yeah, I think she's a strikingly beautiful woman with some really interesting facial structures. But and Ridley Scott is gonna be like, ah, oh, we're gonna capture you and make you look like some ethereal, you know, ex- almost extraterrestrial human. Yeah, yeah. So, so she has really big eyes. She does, and they look greater with eyeliner. Yes. So Baldwin dies, and then his son Baldwin V becomes king when he's eight years old. And Raymond at the time does that look like Edward Norton? By the way, no, not to me. It might yeah. be. Mm. Your opinion. What say you? No, I I I say no. But so so Raymond is Raymond a So is this all in the theatrical cut? That was, yeah. Okay. That was. Um the entire the coronation was skipped. All, everything So none of this. Everything with the kid, if the mm-hmm. kid was in it, it was it's not gone. in the film. Yeah. Okay. And that's really that's really interesting cuz well I guess it makes sense considering you say that her character was hardly in it because like you said she's in almost every scene well, almost every scene that she is in, the son is in. Right. Or a high percentage of them, at least. Right. So, and that's the most meaningful stuff for that storyline, so their relationship. And here was a, a great 
I can't believe like this, this came up time after time, after time, after everything that I read. And I can't believe that it's, it's not in the movie and it's the coronation scene when they, when they crown Baldwin, the fifth, they, they actually, so, you know, Sibylla's father was a Malric the first. So Sibylla's father was King and then her brother was King and her son is King. Mm -hmm. So she's a very pivotal person in the empire. And, when Baldwin was crowned, she was immediately the most important person in the kingdom. The, sure. re- the regency effectively fell to her, and Raymond's time as regent was effectively over. Okay, uh, and so they, the patriarch, gave her a crown and told her to crown um, the man that she thought would be the best regent. As as her as her husband and as her, and and as the uh, uh, the leader of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and this was her this was her way out. So at the time, uh, Guy was actually on the out of the court because of all the trouble that he he was having with with Reynaud at the time, mm-hmm. and so but he was at the ceremony and Reynaud was 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 still in Carrick. He wasn't invited to the coronation as you can imagine, and and they brokered this deal. Before the ceremony of, look, we'll make Baldwin, the, the high court brokered the deal. We'll make Baldwin king, Baldwin V, we'll give you the crown. You give the crown to, to whatever man that you think uh, can can withstand the regency and mm-hmm. lead us out of this mess with Saladin. And she said, okay. And by all intents and purposes, the deal was that she would not pick Guy. Okay. And instead, what she did during the ceremony, right after she got the crown, was she called Guy's name. And apparently half the people in the, in the church of the Holy Sepulcher were like, what? (laughs) Holy crap. Are you serious? Like we just had these negotiations Mm -hmm. yesterday about how we're going to dump Gee, And then now you just choose the the same guy we were trying to. You've gone rogue. Right, right. So it was, it was greatly upsetting. I can imagine how. And I, I don't know like that, that entire story I thought would be great on screen. That's a good twenty minute geese on the outs. Well Sibylla surprises everybody, puts Guy back in charge. But under the construct of this narrative that's presented in the movie, what would be her motivation? Why would she do it? In this movie. I mean essentially she crowns herself. She does. She does. Which is, you know... I just thought that was a great dramatic moment. Oh, sure, 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 sure. I can I can totally see it if you know that whole context, right? Yeah. If you know the entire... If you know the whole story, you can very easily visualize that into yeah. something very dramatic. I mean, it does show the... the... And in the 10-episode Netflix, <laughs> you could totally do it. But in the three-hour, you know, director's cut, still ain't enough time mm-hmm. to establish those relationships and why that would happen. Well, I mean, once that happens, like Raymond of Tripoli... Like he's and, he's out. and, and the Evelyns, like they're they're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, Balian of Evelyn's gone, and Raymond signs his only peace with Saladin, and he and Balian fuck off to Antioch, and they're like, see, ya. this and this is another crisis where the aristocracy says, listen, Guy, you got to do something about this, and then there's this massacre of Christians at Cresson, and a lot of Templars are killed, like seven thousand of them. And Raymond comes back with. Is that, you think that's a real number, or do you think that's a number that's, just? They're all inflated. Yeah, just to they're say all, a lot. Yeah, it's probably half that. Right. Yeah. It's like Moses lived to be how old? Six hundred. Yeah. It's like no, he didn't live, but well, it's like old enough. He was old. Old enough. Yeah. 
So 7,000, a lot of them. Yeah, and Raymond comes back with Balian because of that transgression, and they get together with Guy, and this takes about a year. And, I don't know, they, they decide... You know, they decide, listen, we've got to get Saladin out of Crissan because it's too close to Jerusalem and we have to make the Muslims pay for the massacre. And that's mm-hmm. when they start this march to Hattin. And Guy absolutely fucked up that battle beyond all hope. So so here's the, like, it, it's I don't want to call it the famous scene. Obviously, this scene was not in the original. This right. is basically like a euthanasia moment. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I don't know how I feel about this in regards to in, in regards to the euthanasia. Like she, obviously she doesn't want her son to, to have a life like her brother. Right. And you know, I get that. I just, you know, slipping your, so you don't buy the motivation, slipping your eight year old poison. Well, okay. So we're working on, I'm working on the assumption that this is a quick painless death, death, right? Well, yeah, certainly. And if you want to look at it from a clean cut perspective, that and if you're looking no at argument. it, and if you're looking at it from true belief, where okay, my son will go to heaven, then right. Why so, why would this not be the most reasonable and logical? Oh, that's oh, that's very true. From a yeah, I mean, it's not suicide. It's I mean, it would be murder on her part. Sure, but she's not but worried she, about her. But she son. says, she, and she says in the scene previously that she doesn't want her son to live in a life of hell. She'll go to hell instead. Right. Which, well, that's so. I think that that's very persuasive. Right. That is very persuasive. And it, you know, I don't have any use for violence against children. It breaks me up. But I think that. Does make sense. This whole fight scene was also not in the original. I'm not surprised. Is the original? I guess the original is available. I'm sure they have not even looked for it. No, I'm I'm just wondering. I don't think I would watch it, but it would be interesting to see. Ouch. Yeah. It's very well choreographed. But I, I mean, See, also are they showing s- that he got hit? But well, okay, what is that weapon? The um, the mace, the triple mace. Yeah, is that a mace or is that a morning star or what is that? I don't even know. Yeah, but if he got hit with that, he would not be functioning this well. I don't think. No, <laughs> no. Uh, this is one of those things where it's, it's. I almost like don't get the point of the of the skirmish. Yeah, I almost don't either. That's why I was saying it was, when you said it was cut, I'm not stunned. Yeah. I guess it may be as one of those things where it's as simple as, okay, we haven't had anything happen in a while. We need something. Yeah. We every, need action. Every 20 minutes. Yep. Raynaud in the cell and Geese coming to save him. So we're on the road to Hattin. So I know we talked about this a little bit before. When I saw this in the theater, not knowing any of the history, you had this giant army leaving Jerusalem to go to Carrick mm-hmm. in the middle of the film. And no one said anything about distance or water or how important water was to an army of that size, which is kind of inherent. Yeah, whatever. you would think it's kind of obvious. Yeah, and and that wound up being okay. Like, the army got all the way to Carrick, and they didn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the film, there's this other battle at Hattin, and it's basically the same scene played out again, only this time, water is an issue, and apparently, it's hot. Yes, no kid. Yeah, and I failed to see why Hattin would be very different from Carrick. So in the, in the original film, there's this actually the shot of, of Balian like pleading 
with uh, with Guy and Reynard. Don't go, please don't. There's no water on the way. Mm-hmm. You can't go. And I was, where the hell was Bailey in the first time? And why was water not an issue the first time? And it seemed very inconsistent. Right. Because when they got into trouble, it was like, well, why didn't they get into trouble the first time? Mm-hmm. And since there was no scene about, hey, you know, we have to have water, and the entire army is at this oasis for a whole day to make sure that we have water. Yeah, lots of water. It, it just seemed very lopsided. Mm-hmm. And it's less so in the director's cut, I think. It's just because there's so much material. Right. But it, it does seem uh, still a little off. So, I mean, we're not given a map. We're not given any distance. We don't know the time that is frame. True. It could yeah. be a different season. But the film doesn't tell you any of that. It just says, well, this time it's hot. Right. You know. So, you know, drink the water or take the armor off or better yet, don't go. The, the whole setup just kind of looks foolish. But, you know, Carrick was in the early spring. Hattin was in June. So that's important. The film doesn't tell us that. Balian was also at Hattin. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. So we'll get into that later. But the film pretty much stays, has him stay in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So that's way wrong. Um, this scene, this is supposedly Saladin's sister. Right. At, at no time did I ever run across this in, in any of the literature. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, this was news to me. Well, because this time... They needed to make it personal. Right. Well, that'll definitely make it personal. Yeah, it will, but it's one of those things where it's... Yeah, and, a, and there was a rape in that scene that was cut from the director's cut. Well, that's unfortunate. And I'm saying that with a certain degree of sarcasm, <laughs> like a lot. Yeah. Um, Scott just thought that it... it it's distasteful and useless? The Yes, that's exactly... That's <laughs> almost exactly what he said. Yeah. It's like, eh, it's got no value. Yeah. but uh, if And this if, is very 300-ish to me. Even oh, though this predates yeah. that movie. It does, but no, you're right. You're right. And Guy and Reynard are just these giant jerks. And if they had not been there, I mean, Hattin never would have happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. The entire existence of the kingdom from its very founding, it was it was based on this aggressive military rule that had always brought the fight to the Muslims. Okay. They were They were very rarely on the defensive. Uh, Baldwin's father, like I said before, Malrick, he invaded Egypt six times in five years. And he occupied Cairo and Alexandria for over a year before he he ran into supply issues. I mean that that was actually something that could have that could, he could have pulled off because ten percent of Egypt is actually Coptic Christians. I mean, there's a sizable mm-hmm. population there, right? Baldwin himself would carry be carried uh, in as a litter into battle, right? Uh, if he had to be, he was an aggressive king. And when he could no longer rule due to his health, he asked for certain regions to take over while he was still alive. And in every single circumstance, those regions proved to be just as aggressive as he was. And the film really ignores the rise of Saladin almost. Like, he doesn't really pop up until the second half is when you start seeing really... You know, they reference him multiple times at the beginning. Right. But he's he's not a character that's involved in the action. Yes. Yeah. And this is a pretty, I mean, this is this is a pivotal. Not, I don't want to say pivotal, but it's an important scene mm-hmm. when he's he's making his case for for Hatim. Right.
and Guy at this point is king, right? Because yes. because Baldwin the fifth is so that's the the true cross in the in the background. The true cross was uh, Saladin returned it to the uh, Orthodox quarter. Very generous of him after the war. Yeah, the cross, the Templar cross that was on the dome of the rock was mm-hmm. was taken down. Yes, and the Templars were allowed to keep it, which is amazing to me. So what I have here is, I don't know where this is from. It says the problem for the Sultan's apologists, that means Saladin, Mm -hmm. was that before 1187, Saladin's military energies were primarily directed against fellow Muslims. For all of his glamour as conqueror of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine, Saladin proved a cautious, at times nervous field commander, better at political intrigue, diplomacy, and military administration than tactics of battle or strategy of campaign. His successes at Damascus in 1154, Aleppo in 1183, and Mosul at 1186 came through the application of political coercion and diplomacy, not brutal assault. How is that a criticism? I think. Yeah, I'm not sure how. It's like, oh, he was rather a student, you know, politician. Yeah. Christian armies defeated him at Montsegard in 1177, Forbelay in 1182, Arsuf in 1191, and Jaffa in 1192. I remember reading about that battle in the book. That was huge because Jaffa is the main port for Jerusalem. Okay. So if uh, most Christians who were trying to get directly to Jerusalem came into Jaffa, and the Christians built a string of castles in between Jerusalem and Jaffa to make sure that road was protected. Indecision had cost him Tyre and Antioch in 1187 and 1188. Saladin's triumph over the Franks was eased by debilitating forces within the Outremer, for which he could claim no responsibility. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Latin Kingdom was having great turmoil when Hattin happened, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, Guy mobilized pretty much like eighty percent of all remaining knights, Templars, Hospitallers forces in order to to pull off this battle. And I don't know to. At one point, I, I see I see their point of view. Saladin was helped a great deal by the divisiveness of the High Court of right. Jerusalem. But to say that Saladin would not have won, would not eventually have conquered Jerusalem because of it, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I think he was on a roll. Right. Well, yeah. I. Who knows? Yeah. We're not defensible. So they see the end coming. Mm-hmm. There, there was a scene where Balian was the siege of Jerusalem starts, and he says, "We're gonna, we're gonna save as many people as possible. We're gonna, you know, we, we're fighting for the people." And that wound up not being the case. There, there was lots of scenes of citizens just being mowed down. Right. So Scott decided to cut it. I think that was a probably makes sense. Yeah, it's like that scene in Starship Troopers. Apparently, when the when the one of the big ships um, hits an asteroid. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, part of the ship breaks off, and there's people flying out into space yes. and dying. And in the, in the very next scene, it's like, "Good job, guys!" You know, <laughs> the pilots. You guys got us out of that. And like, wait, just so Verhoeven. But in that particular movie, that makes sense. <laughs> well, Verhoeven cut that oh, cut that clip of everybody flying out and dying. No, like, well, 
I must be thinking of a different part because I remember a scene that is pretty much that. Maybe it didn't hit an asteroid. When Denise Richards is flying the man, we were really I'd have to watch it again. Yeah. So, Hattin. um, The battle that is not displayed. Yeah. But it makes sense why it's not. I think it's probably more effective that it wasn't. I think it would be, like, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's also one of those things where, I don't know about you, but I've got a certain degree of fatigue with great masses of... (laughs) You know, it's been three armies. hours of a lot of extras. no. It's not this movie. It's it has been done so very much. Yes. We have these two huge masses that go clashing into each other, and then just becomes this chaotic. Who knows what's going on? Slashing, blood splattering, etc., etc., etc. It's been done multiple yeah. times, and this is around Alexander. Yeah. Right. So it's one of those that I think it's in this particular movie. I mean, the siege is more important anyway to this particular story. Well, that's that's a good point. So it makes yeah. sense not to actually have it just show the aftermath. Yeah. If it was, if it was something that had happened in the first half of the movie, then you have to show it. Right. But considering this the home stretch as much as one has in a three-hour movie, that it makes sense just to show the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, they everybody apparently blamed Raymond. Uh, Raymond was leading the column and the true cross was taken in the middle of the battle. And apparently that's when everything when, fell apart. Hmm. And, um, and that's see where that would happen. Yeah. And at the top of a, at the top, well, yeah, I mean, if they've been dragging the true cross around mm-hmm. all of Palestine for 80 years and it was responsible for all of their victories. Right. So you can imagine the, the spiritual or the, the morality of, yeah, of all of that. The happened. morale is gone, and this actually did happen. Apparently, Saladin had had ice uh, tucked in, uh, trucked in from not trucked, but I'm sure cameled in or right. horsed in from uh, mountains nearby where there was actually snow, and he would he would do this all over the place. And he actually gave the cup to Guy to enjoy, and Guy apparently did drink from it, um, and then gave it to uh, Raynaud, and Raynaud took a sip, and Saladin was offended. Because uh, Raynaud would again, he was of noble birth, but mm-hmm. his birth was not as high as Guy's, and and there was a, a Muslim tradition of uh, you accept what's taken from you, and he didn't give the cup to Raynaud. Okay, he gave it to Guy. So when Raynaud takes it, and apparently Raynaud was being very rude and, and being a, a bit of a dick in the tent. Which no, I that think seems is, so out of character for him. Yeah, which uh, apparently, like, I can't believe he was doing that after he just lost this major battle, and. Uh, uh, the the throat slitting apparently did not happen, but he was dragged out of the tent, and mm. Saladin apparently, by all intents and purposes, did cut his head off himself. Mm. Good times and the terrible times. <laughs> yeah, back when it was acceptable. Yeah, I mean this this whole scene is just amazing. Yeah, that's the thing with this movie. Even with the extended thing, there are these little bursts that are. Tremendously compelling in it. The look on Gleason's face. Uh, the slow mo is not necessary. No. Yeah. But it was kind of really Scott's style at the time. Yeah. Uh, they <clears throat> they tried to use an air cannon to blow the head across the sand using a pullback shot, um, where Brennan Gleason would basically just like let go of the people mm-hmm. who were holding him and he would fall and then the air cannon would shoot the head across and you just see the head roll. <laughs> but they could, apparently they tried it four or five it times. It just didn't and look didn't right. work. Yeah. So they, they went for the so close they just up. cut his head off. Yeah. Close up shot of the neck. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when I saw the, if you're in, if you watch the, the features on, on the third or fourth mm-hmm. disc, whatever it is, they've got all of those 
little anecdotes. Yeah. Those oh, the, they've got the footage. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, you hear the air cannon just kind of just <laughs> off and this head roll by. It's like, ah, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fix that for sure. So, uh, Balian and Raymond, uh, got out. Mm-hmm. Raymond was in front. Balian was in back. And, um, they were leading their own contingents from their own uh, duchies. And when, when everything went to shit, it went to shit in the center of the battle. Right. And Raymond and Balian were, were on the extremities, on the extremities and they were able to break out of, of the wings. I mean, they were surrounded too, but they were able to get out of there. It wasn't, it wasn't an enormous battle. Like I remember someone in the movie says it's like 200,000 Muslim soldiers. That's quite a few. That was, that's <laughs> insanity. I, I think uh, they think that maybe the Christians had 17,000 and the Muslims had 20,000. And even that, like they think it's, that's, that's in, pretty exaggerated. That's inflated. As well. Yeah. And at some point in time, somebody says there were, there were 1200 knights mm-hmm. on the Christian side and the rest were just foot soldiers and archers. That's, that's not hard to contemplate. No. So the Muslims captured the true cross in the center of the battle. And after that, the entire effort just falls apart. Foot soldiers who survived the battle were sold into slavery. 200 nobles were executed. And then the siege, which is coming up. This shot of David Thewlis's head is... I guess that's supposed to elicit an emotional response. Yes. Oh, so uh, Balian, Balian fled to, um, I think it was Acre, or maybe Antioch, and that was one of the cities where Saladin had to go conquer after mm-hmm. Hattin, and with the bulk of the Christian army gone, like it was just a matter of time before everything fell, and so if it was Acre, and I do believe it was, maybe it was Escalon, uh, Balian's family... Like his wife and kids and everything, they were still in Jerusalem. So Balian actually asked, he was not the highest noble in Acre at the time, he actually asked Saladin, do you mind if I pass through your lines so I can go be with my family in Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. And Saladin let him do it. Which wound up being, I, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't, I didn't read anything where Saladin said, damn, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but it is like three months later, Saladin's at Jerusalem. It's like, oh, if I and he's like, what's going on? There's only two knights inside, and right. one of them is Balian of Ebelin. And I can just imagine Saladin going, damn it! I had my chance. Right. So he, um, Balian actually sent Saladin an apology and said, can I stay inside the city? Mm-hmm. Actually asked him, can I stay? Do you mind if I stay inside the city and defend the city from your army? And Would you mind? And Saladin said, yeah, sure, that's fine. That's okay. And, and apparently, um, I don't remember, I don't know who the other knight was. Uh, I don't think I ever read his name, but apparently Balian knighted every male over the age of 16. So. And there were very few of them. Uh, I think there were, I mean, it was in the hundreds. Right. And then he did the whole pot boiler speech. Apparently that's real. Okay. And then he distributed them around the city until Saladin's army approached, and it was very obvious where they were going to attack. Going to attack, yeah. And and, and when Saladin's army uh, breached the wall, it was, it was very coincidental. It was very near the place where 
the first crusaders had breached the wall to get into the city. Is that coincidental or is that an architectural defect? Well, it wasn't the exact spot. So I think it's, I don't think so. I think Saladin was looking for the weakest spot and it just happened to be there. And just, just down from there was where the first crusaders did in 1099. And, and that's another thing that I, I suppose is, is worth mentioning. Like 1099 was a bloodbath in Mm -hmm. the true sense of the word. Like when the crusaders got into the city, they killed every man, woman, and child inside that city, including Jews, including Armenians and Orthodox. They killed fucking everybody. And Saladin refused to do that. It, mm-hmm. There was just something that was just not on his plate for whatever reason. Right. I mean, you know, you, we could say, oh, well, he's such an honorable guy. Or or he could have just, just said that's... Or he was more devout or it was just or one of those more, things. Right. Like, nah, I'm not doing that. Didn't believe that it was necessary, but he just, that was never an option for him. Uh, he got the city... Without mm-hmm. having to expend the effort. And in the end, that's what matters. Right. This set is amazing. Oh, yeah. It's, again, just another example of... The movie is so close, but it's not quite there in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Not that I've done a very good job of illustrating why. Just doesn't... I mean, look at that. I right. mean, that, that crossed the whole set and... It, I mean, I do, I do think that it's an epic. It is. It's absolutely an epic by any definition. And there, there are epics that fall short mm-hmm. or don't quite get there, but they're still epics. Yeah, there's a lot of ambition. It's a big reach. Yeah. Um, Luke and I watched the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think last year I found it at Costco, like a huge set. We rewatched it. I am not a fan of the cinematography. No, why not? Just, just, just doesn't work for just you. Does, yeah, it's just not, you know, it's 1954. Mm-hmm. It's Technicolor, which is fine. It's just, it doesn't, it seemed, that's when they really came up with uh, scope. Right. Right. And I think. At I think, a fight TV. Yeah. And DeMille was in, by that time he was in the 60s. And I Which just, boy seemed really old until I was almost fifty. Right, yeah. But you know, he he started making movies in the teens. Yes. You know. He'd been around a while. Yeah, and I just think that he was struggling with how do I adapt to Yeah. How do I use this format to mm-hmm. capture this image? And then like four years later has been her. And that's That's, that's an what, epic. Right. That is very different movie in terms of but they're both epics. Just, right. One just doesn't seem very very well shot. Well, and when you have an epic, those things matter. Yeah. So what else you got in the great book of... Oh, my God. I mean, thank goodness the movie's almost over. What what I do have is this thing I actually saw... I saw yesterday... Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I marked a couple of things that I thought were were fairly interesting about the life of Occidentals, which are the Westerners who are living in the Utremere, um, the wedding itself that I talked about that happened inside Carrick, uh, the death of Baldwin the fourth. And, but there was this great thing about the siege of Jerusalem and it was about, 
When Balian came before his tent, Saladin declared that he had sworn to take Jerusalem by sword, and only unconditional surrender would absolve him from that oath. He reminded Balian of the massacres committed by the Christians in 1099. Was he to act differently? The battle raged as they spoke, and Saladin showed that his standard had now been raised on the city wall. But at the next moment, his men were driven back, and Balian warned Saladin that unless he gave honorable terms, the defenders in desperation before they died would destroy everything in the city, including the buildings in the temple area sacred to the Muslims, and they would slaughter the Muslim prisoners that they did hold. Mm -hmm. Saladin, so long as his power was recognized, was ready to be generous, and he wished Jerusalem to suffer as little as possible, and it doesn't say why. Right. He consented to make terms and offered that every Christian should be able to redeem himself at the rate of 10 dinars per man, five a woman and one per child. Then Balian pointed out that there were 20,000 poor folk in the city who would never afford such a sum. Could a lump sum be given by the Christian authorities that would free them all? Saladin was willing to accept 100,000 dinars for the whole 20,000, but Balian knew that so much money could not be raised. It was agreed that for 30,000 dinars, 7,000 should be freed. On Balian's orders, the garrison laid down its arms, and on Friday, 2nd of October, Saladin entered Jerusalem. It was the 27th day of Rajab, the anniversary of the day when the prophet in his sleep had visited Jerusalem and then wafted into heaven. And then later, uh, Heraclius, Heraclius was the asshole patriarchate I was talking about before. It shocked the Muslims to see Heraclius paying his 10 dinars for his ransom and then leaving the city bowed by the weight of the gold that he was carrying, followed by carts laden with carpets and plate. (laughs) Thanks to the remains of Henry II's donation, the 7,000 poor were freed, but many thousand could have been spared slavery if only the orders in the church had been more generous. Soon, two streams of Christians poured out through the gates, and one of those whose ransom had been paid by themselves or Balian's efforts, the other by those who could afford no ransom and were going into captivity. So pathetic was the sight that Al-Adid turned to his brother and asked for a thousand of them as reward for his services. They were granted to him, and he was at once set free. The patriarch Heraclius, delighted to find so cheap a way of doing good, then asked that he might have some slaves to liberate. He was granted 700, and 500 were given to Balian. Then Saladin himself announced that he would liberate every aged man and woman. When the Frankish ladies who had ransomed themselves came in tears to ask him where they should go, for their husbands or fathers were slain or captive, he answered by promising to release every captive husband. And to the widows and the orphans he gave gifts from his own treasury, to each according to their estate. His mercy and kindness were in strange contrast to the deeds of the Christian conquerors of the First Crusade. And that's generally the judgment of Saladin, like we were just saying before. Right. Now, the the knight and the horse, that was, that was her son's toy. Yes. Obviously, what does that represent? Please tell me. Because I've, I've seen this movie three or four times and I've seen the horse go back and forth and people keep picking it up and they're looking at it and they're putting it back down. And we know that Ridley Scott has a fascination with horses. We've seen Blade Runner. We've seen, uh, what's the legend mm-hmm. we've seen. Um, they did, they, they do keep popping up. Right. So yeah. what does it mean in this story? I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think, uh, yes, yeah, so, you're right. It's been highlighted a few times and is it as just as simple as, yeah, that's very cool. Is it? But is it as simple as just a, a symbol of her son, 
or I'm not sure. It's just something that my son had. I think it's just, yeah, it's just a... I'm nostalgic for my son who's no longer here. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously important to him, right? Yes. It was his favorite toy. It was his whoopee, if you will. (laughs) I mean, it's a stuffed animal, except that it's a horse with a dude with a spear on it. So, you know, whatever you connect to, it's probably just what that is. So, yes, the great siege scene, which is pretty cool. <laughs> it is. And, you know, Troy is around this time. Mm-hmm. Troy was 2001, I think, or 2002. Some, some, somewhere around and, that yeah. same general time frame. And you're talking a movie with, I think, mean, Peter O'Toole, Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. Orlando Bloom is in that. He plays Paris, I think. Yeah. Um, the God, what Eric is his Banya. name? Eric Banya, yeah. He's in that. And, and really an opportunity for... And the, and the director, wasn't that Wolfgang Peterson? I think that's right. Yeah, I believe so. You know, so you've got all the stars lined up then. But if you were to say Troy or Kingdom of Heaven, I mean, yeah, no competition. Kingdom of Heaven is much better. Yeah, look at look at the shot. Yeah, no, like, it's, and it doesn't matter if it's CGI or not. Like it's really well done. Yeah, it's very effective. And I mean, I would, this is another thing that I've thought about really hard because again, this is after nine 11, mm-hmm. you know, try to find an image in, in a Hollywood movie of a Muslim praying before nine 11 and after nine 11, you'll have a lot and there's one in black Hawk down, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so Scott's done it a few times. The only the only one that comes to mind before nine eleven is that fucking movie with Peter Sellers in it, like one of the Clouseau movies. Oh, I don't even know. When he's 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 like <laughs> making fun of the fact that Muslims put their foreheads on the ground right. and he rolls over on the floor and he's just making a joke out mm-hmm. of something to them, which is a very deep devotion that happens five times a day for a reason. Right. But I, I sure don't remember. Yeah. I, well, I remember it, and I didn't mm-hmm. understand it at the time. It's one of those things where, as you become more conscious of the world we live in, right. that seems way out of bounds for me. Um, yeah. And, and that may not have been Peter Sellers' point. That may have been... Oh, I'm sure it wasn't his point. I mean, it was one of those things like, I will... Or maybe it was his point. I don't know. But... Well, I don't think that he's a was a malicious man. I just think he was just trying to do something for a joke. Right. Exactly. But I think that joke looks very off-color 30 years later. Sure. Yeah. I don't have a strong opinion on it because I just... You'd have to see it. Well, it's not that in per se, just, but the general statement is how often have has the Muslim world been portrayed in popular Western entertainment? Yeah. And I don't know if there's any compelling reason for most stories in popular Western entertainment to portray the... Muslim faith in any regard, because it's not as much of a component in day-to-day life. Right. Yeah. The, the only, so it's the, one of those things where it's like, I haven't really thought about it because I haven't been portrayed very much. And I'm not so sure in most stories, if it makes a whole lot of sense to portray it. Like at all, at all. I mean, yeah. how often do you see, you know, people praying before dinner in movies? Yeah. Very few. It's, you don't see yeah, it. Very, you know, you just don't because yeah. it doesn't have a whole lot of, Unless there's a specific point to it in that particular story, you don't see it a lot. And right. usually when they show things like that, they're saying, well, look at these people. They must be whack jobs. <laughs> right. Yeah, red state. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh, yeah. well, you know. Yeah. So it's one of those that you just don't see it a lot. And I don't know if in most popular entertainment, 
if religion plays a huge role since probably the 1950s. Yeah. Where yeah. you had it a lot more often. Yeah, the evangelical movement. I mean, you, yeah. you always have them occasionally, right? right? I was thinking of Billy Graham and the whole yeah. revivalism. And, and that cre- that did creep into mm-hmm. TV and Hollywood. And, yeah, but it's not in a lot of the stuff that lasted. Right. 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 So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of things going on here. Like, I mean, obviously, Hollywood was not founded by... Um, exclusively a Jewish community, but as time went on, uh, people in the Jewish community seemed to have a, a hold on, on most of the major studios and most of the executive positions. Mm-hmm. And that went on to the twenties and the thirties sure. uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jack Warner and I mean, you, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And, and, th- and that's, there's, there's nothing that's surprising about that, but you know, they were, they were trying to, to obviously have a balancing act between they want to be observant Jews, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they had to be very careful about what they displayed sure. in terms of their religious views in, in their product, because most of their market was, was dominated by Christians. Yeah, but they weren't trying to make art. They were trying to make money. They were trying to, exactly. Yes. So, I mean. Uh, absolutely. Know yeah. your audience. Right, uh, but and they were not afraid of cashing in. Like if you Talk see about. movies like Hail Caesar, mm-hmm. right, where it's very obvious the, of what's going on. Uh, I've not seen Hail Caesar. Oh my God, that's a yeah. Cohen's brother. that's going home yeah, with I'm you not, tonight. Yeah, I you'll I, you'll enjoy that. Oh, one, I'm but, sure. But so uh, regardless of that, like they films like The Ten Commandments and mm-hmm. Ben Hur, obviously very very successful movies. Right. The 60s introduces uh, not just the breakdown of the studio system, but a secularism that really takes hold, mm-hmm. particularly the tours in the 70s. Right. And the 80s is kind of like everything gun- goes. It's just every, every I think, I think the 80s just all bets are off. Okay. You know, you've got Back to the Future and Liquid Sky. Yes. In the same decade. You know, it's, it's just, it's bizarre. And yes. People are scrambling. And I, I think in the 90s, in large part, they're trying to rebuild cinema. Mm-hmm. And then I th- I think in the middle of that, 9-11 happens. Okay. And I, I think that reorients Hollywood's thinking pattern in terms of, of how they want to portray other people as a whole. It, it, I, mm. You not might. just not just Muslims, right? No, not you, just in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I don't know, right? I haven't put any thought into it, right? So you may be one hundred percent right. I'm, oh, I'm completely going off of bullshit. I have not read it. It's okay. Yeah, no, that's that's fine, right? This is purely an opinions, right? And <laughs> oh my god, look at that! Man. It's very cool. Now, getting back to the movie. Getting yeah. back to the movie. Okay. Um, so. This whole look at this man. You take any shot in Troy mm-hmm. and match it against this battle scene. Yeah, it's not even close. It's, yeah. No, this is a. Definitely the highlight. Well, not oh, the highlight, but God, one of the highlights. Arrows flying. I mean, this is if you're going to pick one in, in comparison, mm-hmm. the Battle of Helm's Deep out of the two towers. I think even though it's fanciful with you know the elf flying across a shield, right? And all this, the stuff like I. But still, I mean, there's a huge scope to this, and I don't know how true to life it is, and I don't really care again. It's like, I just know that this is really well done, and this is pretty entertaining. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't want to hammer. I've been pretty hard on the historical Mm -hmm. inaccuracies of the film, but I don't want to hammer it too hard because when, I mean, when it comes to a battle, you're going to be very hard pressed to find out what actually happened in in any battle at at any Mm point. 
in any juncture, even in Iraq. But I'm just not sure on the uh, technology, if this is consistent with what was... Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, God, Scott got hammered for Gladiator, you know, for the for the scene in the beginning mm-hmm. with the setting fire to the arrows. And just not... Just, and it wasn't... It's not that they didn't set fire to arrows. It's apparently it was how they did it with the oil. Mm-hmm. And he had people on set telling him, you know, this isn't historically accurate. And I, I don't give a shit. Yeah, he's like, I, I don't, don't care. Does it look I mean, good? Right. Yes. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to watch a Civil War recreation and say, oh, that regiment was on the far side. I don't, right. I'm not that guy. Now, you would be really weirded out if they all of a sudden had AK-47s. Well, yes, <laughs> that's going a bit far. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a very cool dramatic license mm-hmm. that in the end um it doesn't doesn't matter how accurate it is what there have been a couple of times like i remember going into seeing braveheart mm-hmm. I, I had a working knowledge of <coughs> scottish history mm-hmm. and i was just kind of wondering why there was no bridge in the battle of sterling bridge because it wasn't right. that important like, <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, but I have to say, like, the rest of Braveheart, great. Didn't, mm-hmm. didn't care. Saw it recently with Luke about last month and uh, didn't hold up too well. No. I haven't seen it in forever. I, do you know if she really cut her hair for the role? Or I, don't, she, I don't know, but she certainly looks like she did. Um, Doesn't mean it's not a wig. Brie Larson in Endgame uh-huh. was obviously wearing a hair cover. Okay. And she bobbed her hair for Captain Marvel in Endgame. Uh, but it's obviously a wig because her, her head is just too puffy. Right. Right. Skull cap and then wig over it. This does not look like a skull cap. With no, a, this looks like it's probably legitimately a bad haircut that she, you know, did it, looks, it looks legit. It does. You'd have to go back and find, you know. I remember when Mila Jovovich cut her hair for uh, The Messenger. Which really? is the, the Joan of Arc movie from the 90s. Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. And uh, that was in, she was modeling during mm-hmm. that time. And there were, there were a lot of people that did not want her to model anymore because she had that. Because she cut her hair off? Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Same thing happened to uh, Natalie Portman when she. Yeah, she whacked you know, her hair for something. She whacked her for uh, uh, V for Vendetta. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I would imagine that would have. Greatly affect the amount of roles that are available to her after that. I don't know, which doesn't make any sense because the, the wig is easier to yeah, wear. Yeah, so that's the thing is I don't know. You know, I don't know how much any of that stuff affects their ability to get roles, and that it may may have a huge impact or nominal. I really don't know. Just the sheer slaughter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the nice thing is, for, like, that particular scene, I remember that, is that, you know, they acknowledge the disease threat. Yes. And the burning of it isn't for anything beyond practical reasons. Right. Which is something that they didn't need to put in there. I thought that was an interesting touch. Right. Um, I'm a little, little sketchy on my memory of Muslim requirements for burial, but I, I believe I that it's a, it's a, you have to bathe the body and wrap it in a white sheet and it's gotta, it's gotta be done in a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously when you're in a, a situation like this, you can't do that. Like right. if, if that body decays, it could spread disease. Everybody's going to die. Yeah. It's, it's a very bad situation. It doesn't matter what religion you're mm-hmm. in. Yeah. You know, 
just the, I don't know who did the costumes, but my Lord, you know, well, did this win any Oscars? I don't, I didn't know. I don't, I didn't see any. You want to look it up? Yeah. Um, it just seems so amazing to me. And the trebuchets. Of course, I don't know what the Arab word would be for them. And again, there's probably only a thousand extras in front of the camera, but just the software that they're using to to create the the yeah, sense it, that there's thousands of them there is just simply amazing. It looks really good. And I'm thinking of films like I haven't seen it in 30 years, but Gandhi, which I think sets the which record not for extras. Yes. Yeah. But I, I, there are you know, no CGI. There's there's like one scene. There's like twelve thousand people in one shot. And, and when you look at this, I mean, it really looks like there's twenty thousand yeah. people in. Yeah, I don't know. I thought this was like one of those that was maybe the last time you had this huge group of extras. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars. Yeah, oh, that that seems because I always like throwing sound design or something. Yeah. Name your top five favorite battle scenes. Top five favorite battle scenes. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. I have. I have. Five. Sorry, this is no. That we're gonna put that one back to the post. The post. Okay. I've got five. You want to hear them? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear them. Spartacus. In no order. Sure. Spartacus. Gladiator. Braveheart. Enemy at the gates. Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Which battle? I'd have to go with the opening one. Okay, I've got a soft spot. For See, that. and I found this. I found the uh, end of the movie one significantly more. Terrible. A lot of people say that. Really? Yeah. I, I, I thought I, I was about the only one. To be no, I, a lot of people had told me that. I prefer the one at the end. Like I know the one in the beginning. It's all the all the mm-hmm. credit, but the one at the end is really the one I prefer. Luke prefers that one. Yeah, I thought it was much more terrifying. Yeah, because at that point you kind of have an idea of who th- some of the characters are, and it was also you saw at the beginning how okay we're going to be completely violent and. You know, take no prisoners yeah. for the viewer. So it's like, okay, so what's going to happen in this one with characters that I now have a relationship with? Kind of like this battle here. Yeah. Like, oh my God. But even then, this is one of those things where going back to two and a half hours ago, I think if you had some of the people who were with his father's group yes. who were in this battle, you would have this enhanced. Oh, you're right about that. There's more emotional investment. Right. And yeah. Jeremy Irons isn't in this, but. Because that's probably, I guess, more historically accurate. Yeah, it but is, why, yeah. you know, from a drama standpoint, okay, if you're going to stick with that, that's fine. But then, yeah, get some of these other people who you've had, you know, some degree of relationship with. Because right now it's Orlando Bloom and his bald buddy. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. that's kind of getting the gravedigger from France. Yeah. You know, there you go. Yeah. And then, you know, the German... Yeah, but the he's German Thor. Yeah, but he's been yeah. dead. But I mean, in the actual battle right now, that's right. some of the people you know. That is a good point. That's a very good point. And now that we've sat through here for two hours and forty nine minutes, I I do see that that would make the film more emotionally yeah I connected mean, to the viewer. We're just to me. <laughs> I mean, look at this. So apparently there is not one extra in the shot. Yeah, I believe it. And that's got to be, what, 150 people? At, at least. 200? Uh, that just looks amazing. But you're talking about like completely random movements. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Yeah, which apparently is what the software was was designed for. It's kind of like a, a Monsters Inc., where they they designed a software just for uh, Sully's hair, <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't want it all behaving the same. Right. They wanted all the hairs to act know. independent of each other. Right. Jesus. Which is probably an appropriate response to this. But this this was not. Battles of this size mm-hmm. were not uncommon in this era. They, oh well, yeah, that's the way you did it. Yeah, they they were uncommon in Europe. They they just could not mass mm-hmm. that amount of people in one place for very long periods of time. Right, and particularly in, in England, like you had you had ninety days mm-hmm. max to pull off whatever it was you were. Otherwise, it's not happening. Yeah, but you know that's. You know, that's how it was done back then, to a large degree, I'm guessing. And and no antibacterial soap. <laughs> oh, yeah, nothing good. Yeah, you got cut, you died. <laughs> no tetanus shots. No. I mean, it just, it boggles the mind, you were saying earlier before about penicillin. Yeah, it, but know. it is one of those things that, you know, a lot of it is that simple. <laughs> you know, how many people had polio? <laughs> a good quarter of the Jeez. population. <laughs> That's tremendous. Convert to insulin. Prevent later. So when the Muslims entered the city, they spared the Armenians who wanted to stay. They invited the Jews back and they spared the Holy Sepulchre because Saladin knew that he could make money off of it by charging Christians on pilgrimage. All the Latin clergy were expelled. Pope Urban III allegedly died of profound shock when he heard the news. And the reaction to this was ground shaking Europe had effectively gave up on crusading after the first crusade and after the second crusade had failed they shrugged but after Jerusalem fell Europe freaked out a lot of countries started instituting crusade taxes specific to the cause okay. to permanently finance expeditions and a direct result of the fall of Jerusalem is the third crusade which three kings went on Richard I, who fought Saladin the whole time, mm-hmm. but he failed to retake Jerusalem. The others were uh, Philip Augustus of France and then um, Barbarossa, who was the Holy Roman Emperor of Germany. So getting into uh, Saladin and this great actor who plays him, uh-huh. um, I did read this paper by this woman named Miriam Pages, and she said, quote, Scott's Saladin displays a level of understanding and sophistication far beyond the reach of his crusader foe. Whereas Balian asks the question, what is Jerusalem worth? Saladin's reply suggests that he realizes that a site can bear little military and political value while simultaneously possessing great symbolic significance. Mm-hmm. Balian cannot grasp this level of complexity to him. Jerusalem must either be an earthly city where flawed human beings reside or hallowed ground on which sinners such as himself might expect to encounter God. It cannot be both. By contrast, Saladin's far shrewder and more cunning character reveals himself more than ready to harness his followers' dreams and hopes in order to secure his ambition. Scott has made it clear that any idealized vision of Jerusalem has been ruined by fanatics on both sides of the conflict. Okay. I'm not so sure if I'm okay. That's a lot to take in. 
It is, but I also don't know why she says that about his character. Well, and Balian, Balian says in the speech, like, look, I'll, I'll destroy everything that's religious in mm-hmm. the city yeah. if, if, you, if you come in. And Saladin's response is, well, maybe the world would be better that way. Yeah. There's no way Saladin would say that. The Dome of the Rock is inside the city. It's the second most holiest site in all of Islam. Yeah, that, but that, it's, that's, it's ludicrous to think that Saladin would say that. Yeah, but that's not what that critic you quoted right. was talking about, right? But she danced on the edges of it. She she prefers the 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 kind hearted Saladin, mm-hmm. right? Which is yeah. fair. It's just one of those things where I'm, I'm I don't I don't I just don't have a response right now. God. Uh, at the Battle of Antietam in 1863, um, I, I read a book somewhere where this this guy was said like, it was not an exaggeration mm-hmm. that you, you could cross the battlefield and not step on grass. Yeah, that's what that looks like to me. You could not step on sand. It's just a horrible waste of life. So this chapter is actually called the perfect night. Like if you go into the, into the chapter six, the Mm -hmm. DVD, that's what it's called. The perfect night. Is that a tad pretentious? Just a tad. Is there such a thing as a perfect night? Well, from a theoretical idea, I can't say specifically from an actuality standpoint. From from their standpoint, there is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, for purposes of this, yeah, he guess he was. Because he did what was ordered of him when he was knighted. Right. He protected the innocent. Fought the good fight. That kingdom can never be surrendered. The kingdom of conscience, I guess he's referring to. Historian Kathleen Biddick said this film was under unbearable pressure of contemporary politics. She called the defense of Jerusalem a fantasy scenario. Crusader historian Jonathan Riley Smith accused the film of representing Osama bin Laden's version of history. The village voice declared it, quote, fascist or at least newly Riefenstahlian in its perspective, unquote. Based, I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> uh, they they think that they're 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 giving Muslims a complete pass that they're not nearly uh, portrayed as aggressive. Or, well, I mean, I got that from the first one, yeah, but not the second one. Or was that all a single quote from a single review? Single, the fascist part. Yes, the single quote from a single review. Yeah, just it was one person who was summing up. So, okay, so, so, yeah. I thought that was two separate quotes. Okay, yeah. So. Um, oh God! The, the confrontation between Balian and Guy. Mm, I forgot about this part. Yeah, this was not in the in the first version either. I'll just ignore that. That's the ending. Oh, ending music, which I'm going to have to push to a little farther. Um, yeah, it's no problem. So this is two hours and fifty-seven minutes in. This is an incredibly long movie. It is. But it's, I mean, we found a couple of scenes that we could do without. Yeah, no, I don't think, I couldn't imagine it being much shorter and being even close to watchable, that's for sure. Yeah, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Maybe. Right, but. I couldn't even tell you what it would necessarily be beyond, uh, that there was like the one scene, it's like, okay, you could probably 
get rid of that. That doesn't have a whole lot of value. But right. even then, I don't know that. I don't even know if this scene is necessary. No, um, I don't think this one is. I mean, I... I, I don't know. Gee went to... He gets uh, his comeuppance. That always matters. Right. Right. Yeah, but I don't know if it was really... If it was gone, if I'd have been... Oh, they should have had this part. Yeah. He was ransomed. Gee was. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how he, he got back. So Saladin allowed him to be ransomed, and then he 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 made a deal to to go to Cyprus, and he took Sibylla with him. So I know this is going to shock you, but Sibylla didn't go back to France with Balian. Really? Yes. I, it, it, no, what? <laughs> Balian was actually married to another woman we yes, talked about no. before. Yeah. But this, again, not dramatically satisfying. Yeah, and I mean this this actually is a, a fairly emotional scene. I thought this was very well done with mm-hmm. the, the blood on the banners and then uh, Saladin. And the Muslims as a whole who see Jerusalem just as holy as as the rest of Christendom. Right. And and they have an, an emotional feeling when they, when they enter the city. Here's the scene that I've got a problem with. Let me pick up this cross and set it here. So the, the historian who was on the set asked this actor... Why did you do that? He mm-hmm. said, it's because that's what Saladin would have done. Okay. I have a hard time believing that Saladin would take 30 seconds out of his day to pick up a Christian symbol off the floor and put it on the table. Well, I think the Saladin in the movie, it m- makes sense. You know, again, it was one of those where, you know, this movie goes out of its way to show respect and all that to the different beliefs and cultures, right? I mean, that's kind of a, this, the, basically the point of the movie, right? Right. So it's totally in line with the way the character has been portrayed. You know, if this was a totally fictional story, it's consistent. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Now you're saying the historical, right? Yeah, um, and you know historians. I mean, I don't, course, I don't have this problem, but mm-hmm. just historians, as in, in general, they they just don't like people fucking with history, right? Yeah. yeah, and and I get that. At the at the same time, like I, you know, I am a obviously a huge film mm-hmm. fan, and I I don't mind it so much. It it really kind of depends on what they do, right? Right. right. Like I'm less interested in in Bailey and. and um, not being married and the whole love triangle, right? And, and you know, I'm more concerned with the, the what is the film trying to say? What is the film trying to mean? And then the primary events, like yeah. walking this was around a, the cross instead of on top of it. Yeah, like but if, if it was one of those things where in the movie, you know, they had successfully driven back the Muslim hordes and retained Jerusalem, you probably have a problem with that. Yes, because you know that is a major. Veer from reality. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But those little things are details and they're color and nuance. I, I mean, I did, I did read a lot of reviews by a lot of people who complained about uh, Saladin's character and called it, you know, a whitewashing of terrorism and all this other bullshit. And well, I ju- yeah. just, I don't really don't see that. I, Saladin has always been seen as an honorable man. Right. And but I, it's also one of those things where 
like you were saying, take it in the context of its era. You know, it came out four years after, you know, 9-11. And it's like, hey, as much as it's not very polite to say, there is a certain percentage of Islamic, you know, um, terrorists, terrorists yeah. who want to kill us all. Yes. The jihadis. And there's yeah. not a lot of them, right? That's no, not a very no, high percentage. No. That's like saying every white person is... Every white male is going to be a mass murderer with a machine gun. Right. It's like, no, but boy, there seems to be a lot of them recently. Sure. Especially in this state. Only two in the state. Only two in the state? I can think of off the top of my head because, you know, it's the past month. Well, two in this past month. Yeah. There was a large one that was right down the road just last year. Yeah, man. So, (sighs) anyway... um, I mean, but I'm, so I'm not going to... For the movie itself. For the movie it itself. It makes sense. So, so, I mean, I actually, like, you know, again, don't have a problem with... I've got... There's plenty of historical movies that mm-hmm. veer off the, oh, yeah. the beaten path. Um, Balian taking Sibylla back to France. I, I understand why Ridley Scott would want that to happen. Yes. That makes complete sense from a story Because it redeems both the characters. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, maybe it doesn't redeem them, but at least... And considering this Balian is supposed to be mostly fictional, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, I get it. It just... Um, Sibylla didn't go back to France. She'd never been to France. She went to Cyprus with Guy. So... Uh, that seems pretty inconsistent with me. Right. So I was pretty shocked. Uh, you know, the theatrical, he's not even in France. He mm-hmm. just leaves the Holy Land and credits. Which would make a lot of sense. It too. would make a, a whole a whole lot more sense than this yeah. does, for sure. And here we are thinking, man, I don't know if we can talk for three hours of this movie, but we seem to fill it up quite well. Well, I suppose you're right. You had a... <laughs> A lot of stuff to go through there, though. How much? What percentage of your book were you able to grind through? Well, the rest of these are just academic papers. I mean, uh, it's only it's only a couple. I, you know, I, I, I another thing that I don't understand is why is Balian allowed back in this village? Isn't he a wanted murderer? So I he kinda, went down and he he purged his he purged his son. He's, he's forgiven. Well, and who else? He went to the Holy Land. Yeah, and also right? it's so here's King Richard. It's the Middle Ages also. It's like, you know, everybody who remembered him might already be dead from some kind of plague. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. disappointing that it's not, you know, Sean Connery. So here's something else that I got from the same source. The tragically passive heroine of Kingdom of Heaven contrasts jarringly with the historical Sibylla, a figure presented by contemporary historians as a strong, willful woman capable of deceiving the Eastern barons in her attempt to control her own personal as well as political destiny. By depicting a historical figure with a relatively well-recorded life and altering that a historical narrative so drastically, Kingdom of Heaven indirectly contributes to a larger conversation about women in the Middle Ages and today. Through its substitution of a lost damsel in distress for a historically strong female ruler, the film is in fact reinforcing several hegemonic narratives about women. Sibylla's political actions are erased, and her fictional persona possesses little to no actual agency— by silencing Sibylla's historical voice, the film is therefore suggesting that women cannot act or even fully exist without men. Now, I would say here that this was written about the original release. Okay. And 
this version, like we talked about before, like there's like 40, 45 minutes of Sibylla put back into the movie. Right. So I would disagree with this. I, I think that it focuses a lot on, on her character. Yeah, but it, yes, I agree with you. And she does display an ability to be agile and nimble and strong and all that. Maybe it doesn't accurately (coughs) represent her accomplishments in that time frame. I don't know. Well, she does seem like she's flailing around a little bit, like trying to grasp hold of what do I do with my child, with my brother, with, with, with my husband. Seems very reasonable under the circumstances. Right. Yeah, she looks like a woman who was put in an impossible position. Yes. With those problems and surrounded by the entire Muslim world. Everybody was in a tough situation. And everybody was just a bunch of jerks. Yeah. Well, particularly her husband. Particularly her husband. Yeah. So there are some questions, and then we'll wrap up real quick. Yeah. Okay. So oh, my ear. does the production... Okay, I read a compelling essay by historian Don Hayes in which she posited a number of questions about Kingdom of Heaven that I thought was relevant. Mm -hmm. So I want to review some of them. Does the production appear to be historically accurate? Generally speaking, like, I mean, there's a few things that are off here and there, but I I think so. I can't have an opinion of it because I didn't do all the research that you did, but it doesn't strike me as something that is egregiously out of reality. Well, like you're saying, the fall of Jerusalem mm-hmm. is true. The, you know, the, right. you know, the battle of Hattin is true. I mean, they're characters doing sidesteps, but you know, uh, Saladin's character seems to be intact. Mm-hmm. Okay. If it is not historically accurate, why did the filmmakers make such changes? Well, I think that goes back to your point earlier about dramatic license. Yeah. You got to take a, you got to tell a story. Yeah. Right. And it's one of those things you can't include every single detail. You have to do whatever makes the most amount of sense to be able to accomplish your story in the time frame you got. Yeah, which is three hours and eight minutes. Uh, why is Bailey indifferent? He was born in the Holy Land and was 40 at the time this happened. Well, I mean, again, that's dramatic license. That doesn't mm-hmm. bother me. Why is there only one church in the entire movie about the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> good question. I, yeah, I, I think that's a valid question. Pretty good question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Unless it's one of those things where you're taking it as a rejection of religion and an embracement of faith. Well, okay. So I read a lot of stuff about people who were calling it trash because it, it rejected religion as a whole. But I take your point where it might be a rejection of organized religion, mm-hmm. but it might be the embracing of right. a faith that actually does something for you. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time knocking that at all. I do too. Concur? Yeah. Okay. Baldwin is dead by the time Balian comes to the Utramir. Why? I don't catch that one. I'm Baldwin, not sure what Baldwin you're... is dead by the time Balian comes to the Utramir. That's not that's not accurate in the movie. Was Balian, this a question that you had? This was a question that she she posted in her in her that she commented in her paper. Maybe she's wrong. And then she says, "Are we being deliberately manipulated?" Well, well, of course, of course we're getting busy. We get me, yeah. You don't want to be manipulated to go see a movie. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's okay, yeah. <laughs> All right, academic, not a not a film critic. Okay. Well, I think that's it. Do you have any final thoughts about the Kingdom of Heaven? You know what? I don't. I'm sorry. We've said I just enough. don't. <laughs> I just don't. I'm sorry. I don't have a whole lot of passion for this movie. 
Um, so I just don't. And yet you you recommended it. Yeah, because I thought it would be very interesting for you. Well, that's certainly true. That's that's that I was spent, it. I've spent more time researching right. this podcast than any other but, project. Like I said, I knew this would be interesting for you. Yeah, but I really enjoyed having you over oh, to yeah. talk about it. That's not a problem at all. I, of course, will do that. That's not an issue. But I can't wax poetic on uh, the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> You've done a pretty good job. Eh. Okay. All right. So, thanks for hanging out with me and Dave while we watch The Kingdom of Heaven. He'll be back for future editions of the Super 70 Podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and my website at www.thatdillandavis.com. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her on Twitter and SoundCloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdillandavis and my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and still, we'll meet next time at Harvard University.